goes the neighborhood. Welcome, everybody, on this Saturday morning, September 22nd, 2012, to the 394th episode of Dave's Gone By. I'm Dave Lefkowitz, and I've been hosting this program, well, it is just about 10 full years. We started the show back in October of no, <laughs> I know, Saturday mornings. You know, i got to get my brain to click properly into place. Yeah, we started back on October 6th of 2002, was doing an hour late night, 11 o'clock, on a small Long Island radio station, and said, oh, let, let me try this. Let me try a show that's a little bit different. It'll be some talk. I'll play some music. We'll do some reviews of, like, theater and albums and stuff. <laughs> Well, CDs. We were we were past the analog era by then, and do interviews with people, and do comedy routines, and just throw it up against the wall and see what sticks. And it has stuck, ladies and gentlemen, for 393 previous episodes and for 10 years and counting. We're actually going to be doing a show on October 6th, 2012. It'll be my 10th anniversary show, and I have an unbelievably amazing special guest for that show. So stick around, I'll tell you what that is. But that, that's, that's later. That's for the show we're talking about two weeks away. Let me tell you about the program that we're doing right now from 10 in the, afternoon, 10 in the morning until 1 in the afternoon today, this Saturday. It's going to be our usual wonderful mix on Dave's Gone By. So we'll be hearing from Rabbi Saul Solomon, one of the uh, great friends of this program. He was with us on our very first show. He's back now pretty much every week doing his special rabbinical reflections. And so since we're just a couple of days away from the very important Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur, which is a, a kind of a sad, introspective day of atonement for my people, Rabbi Saul Solomon will give his little sermon, his little homily, his thoughts on the importance of atonement and apologizing and doing well by your fellow man. So that'll be Rabbi Saul Solomon's weekly rabbinical reflection, but we're not done with Rabbi Saul today. Oh, no. Rabbi Saul will be interviewing Stephen Shohet. He's an author, and also he's been a tour guide in Hollywood for many, many years, which means he knows the stories, the anecdotes, the little ins and outs of all these Hollywood legends and movie stars. And I'm talking people like Bing Crosby and the Marx Brothers and George Burns 
and Marlon Brando, and you know, name after name, Marilyn Monroe, and Buster Keaton, and you know, lots of comedy people, but also movie, heavy-duty movie star people as well. And so, um, yeah, he wrote a book about it called Hollywood Stories, filled with these funny, amusing, strange, bizarre anecdotes. So if you or, or maybe one of your family members loves the movies, loves the people who are in the movies, and want to hear these great, funny stories about all the people in them, stick around for Dave's Gone By This Morning. Stephen Shohet will be talking to Rabbi Saul Solomon. Also, we'll go inside Broadway for news of the Rialto. Got some, a little bit of Broadway and off-Broadway news, plus some news about local theater. Not, not very good news, I'm afraid, about one of our local playhouses. I'll tell you about that during our Inside Broadway segment. Also, we do Bob Dylan sooner and later. That's where we play about 20, 25 minutes of uninterrupted Bob Dylan music from all different times in his career. Now, it's a big time for Bob Dylan right now because he just came out with a new album on, of all days, September 11th. Just last week, he came out with Tempest, the 35th Bob Dylan studio album, and you know, still on Columbia Records. So he, um, in conjunction with the release of his album, he's been doing a little bit of media, and he did a big, big interview in Rolling Stone magazine this past week. Very <laughs> very interesting, very Bob-like interview, because he'll, he'll be Bob. He'll be charming one minute, funny the next, brilliant, and then sometimes indecipherable, sometimes a jerk. He, it's all Bob rolled into one in this interview. But anyway, I thought what would be cool for our Bob Dylan segment today is to take songs that are mentioned in that article, including one or two from his new album, and play them in our Bob Dylan segment. So if you happen to have that Rolling Stone issue, or if you're reading the article online, you know, he'll mention a song, and we're going to play it in our Bob Dylan Sooner and Later segment today on Dave's Gone By. We'll also have, um, let's say, another Saturday segue or two. That's where we play a few different songs on a theme. But I haven't mentioned our super, super special guest for the program coming up in about an hour or about an hour and a half from now, we'll be talking to a legendary radio disc jockey in New York. She's Carol Miller, and she was there in the golden heyday, both of kind of FM, somewhat freeform rock and roll, although she wasn't particularly connected to that, but also with WPLJ. Now, if I realize a lot of my listeners are in Colorado, but if you were in New York growing up in the 70s, 80s, you know, and and WPLJ was this power hard rock station that was defining that sound. It wasn't always the station that I was listening to, but you could not ignore WPLJ. It was where, you know, a certain kind of rock and roll was happening. It, it, it was where we get the idea of classic rock. You know, before it was ossified. It, it was classic rock in 1977 when the, the songs were only four years old. You know, now they're they're 34 years old, whatever. But she was part of that. Carol Miller, she is still a New York DJ. She's on WAXQ 104.3 in New York. Um, she has an autobiography out about her life. She's talking very openly about her years in radio back when there weren't a lot of female DJs in rock radio. She'll be talking about knowing people when nobody else knew them, 
like Bruce Springsteen. She'll be talking about dating Steven Tyler of Aerosmith. Yeah, and their first quote-unquote date together. Interesting, interesting stuff. She has also battled the big C. I mean, you know, that's all fun stuff. She's also been battling the big C for many, many years and, and coming out the other side. And unlike, well, I guess he won too. Unlike Charlie Sheen, I was going to say winning, but yeah, he, he's won, she's won. Happy days. Carol Miller on Dave's Gone By coming up in just a while from now. So, so much to do on this episode. I'm so excited. We got Rabbi Saul Solomon, Stephen Shohek, Carol Miller, Inside Broadway, and Saturday Segways. I mentioned we'll be playing music. And so let's get to our first segue since it is Yom Kippur, Kippur, excuse me, uh, this coming Wednesday night into all day. Uh, no, 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 forgive me. It starts on Tuesday night and then goes all through Wednesday until sundown. Holiest day for most Jews, most important day on our calendar, because it's a day when we're supposed to pray and reflect and ask God for forgiveness and to disregard any of the promises that we made over the year because we made them uh, stupidly. <laughs> we made promises we couldn't keep, so we're asking God not to... Um, not to take us too seriously the other 364 days of the year. And so in honor of that, I'm going to be playing a Saturday segue of apologizing and atonement and sorry songs. And what better way to start than with one of the, uh, the, more, well, the, the more direct sorry songs ever. It's, um, I'm, I'm sorry, i got to roll my, my iTunes over here to get this going. Just one quick moment. Yes, we're, we're still a little Luddite here at the radio, so that's better. Okay, here is Brenda Lee with I'm Sorry. Bend up. 
Everybody's in movies, doesn't matter who you are. There are stars in every city, in every house and on every street. And if you walk down Hollywood Boulevard, their names are written in concrete. Don't step on Brother Carbo as you walk down the boulevard. She looks so weak and fragile That's why she tried to be so hard But they turned her into a princess And they sat her on a throne But she turned her back on stardom Because she wanted to be alone You can see all the stars as you walk down Hollywood Oh, 
Shalom, shalom, damn it, this is Rabbi Sal Solomon here on UNC Radio on the Dave's Gone By radio program. We just heard a little bit of the musical group The Kinks doing their song Celluloid Heroes. And that, uh, you know, it isn't all it's cracked up to be necessarily the fame and the fortune and the wealth. I certainly wish I could uh, find that out for myself. I, I would like to know about it personally rather than reading about their terrible troubles. Because I, I, you know, if you gave me a lot of money, what would, I would buy houses, I would buy uh, a stake in the Carnegie Deli, and that would be about it. You know, the rest I would save for my many, many, many upcoming grandchildren. But the main thing that I want to talk with you here today on Dave's Gone By is about a new book. It's a book about Hollywood movie stars, the kind of people that uh, the kinks were just talking about. Folks like Marlon Brando, ooh, and Walt Disney, and Buster Keaton, and Charlie Chaplin, and oh, so many people who had these amazing lives and these amazing stories to go with their lives, these funny, wild, zany, bizarre anecdotes. And who better to share these anecdotes than the person who is on the telephone with me right now, I hope, if the phone is working. His name is Stephen Shohet, and he's written this book called Hollywood Stories, short, entertaining anecdotes about the stars and legends of the movies. It's from Hollywood Stories Publishing. You can get it at hollywoodstories.com. And if you're sitting on the fence, you're like, oh, I don't know, do I need another book? Do I really need to read these stories? Well, our conversation with Stephen Shohet should help get you off the fence and buying that book to read these stories because he's going to tell us some right now. So, Stephen Shohet, happy high holy days to you. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here, Rabbi. Thank you. Same to you. Oh, and you sound wonderful. I, I guess you can hear me and I can hear you. This is going to, we're already rolling. But my first question for you is about your last name. You pronounce it Shohet. Is that because the, uh, the Goyim can't pronounce a ch? Well, it's because that's the way my parents were were pronouncing it. So, so I just uh, I just continued with that, I guess. But, but yeah, it's always been a difficult name to pronounce, and I always had a lot of mangling of it when I went to school. Well, you know what your name means in Hebrew, right? Yeah, I do. As a matter of fact, it, it's it's, um, it's uh, butcher. High holy days, the the showheads, they they. Uh, uh, I think they slaughtered the chickens, actually. Not just on the high holy day. Shochet is a, is a slaughterer, a butcher. And yeah, so, a butcher, yeah. Do you do a hack job on the uh, the stars that you write about? I don't think so. But, but What was that? I'm, I'm saying I, I was making a little bit of a pun there. In your book... Oh, no, no. I, I, you know, the book, I, I didn't try and really go after anybody as far as having something scandalous and scurrilous. I tried to put in a lot of fun stories. So... Without any further ado or a don't, let's hear some stories from the book Hollywood Stories. Let's, let's start with some of the, the serious actor-type people. I keep mentioning Marlon Brando. Tell us a Marlon Brando story or two. Okay. When Marlon Brando, when he made the movie Superman in 1978, by that time he was a little bit lazy. Um, and, and even though he was getting paid quite a bit of money, he didn't really want to show up. And so he uh, suggested to the producers that he just do a voiceover and something can stand in, in his place. And they said, well, what would stand in your place? And he said, well, how about a green bagel? You know, n- nobody knows what Kryptonians look like. For all we know, they could look like green bagels. 
And the producers thought it was funny, but they were also a little bit alarmed. And they said, come on, Marlon, your son's being played by Christopher Reeve. I mean, you have to look human. So he said, oh, all right. He, he was kind of kidding around anyway. So, so he was on screen for 10 minutes, made an estimated, um, it's anywhere from 14 to $19 million because he had ownership, partial ownership of the film. And he never bothered to learn his lines. And he had one scene where he was putting the future super baby on the spaceship and, and, and uh, going to set it away from the doomed planet. And he was speculating on the baby's future. And he had the dialogue written on the bottom of the baby's diaper. Why would he? What, was it just because he was mad? Or, or yeah, mad as in crazy? Or did he want to stick it to the Holly? Did he not like the director? I mean, what was his rationale? No, he just didn't want to learn his lines. He did the same thing in The Godfather. Uh, I mean, he had lines written all over the place. Uh, you, you know, he made the movie The Missouri Breaks. Um, uh, it, it didn't matter with the director who the director was it was just his style but he changed when he made the missouri breaks that same year uh he was making that with jack nicholson and jack nicholson had so been looking forward to working with brando and then brando didn't give him anything to work with because he was always looking at the cue cards he never looked brando he never looked uh jack nicholson in the eye so so jack nicholson said come on marlon give me something so Brando decided rather than use the cue cards, he still didn't want to learn the lines. He'd have <coughs> uh, an assistant in the trailer who would feed Brando the lines to a radio transmitter, um, and, and Brando would hear it through an earpiece. And, and the only problem was that the radio transmitter began to in, inadvertently pick up police broadcasts. So one time uh, Brando was doing the scene, and, and he came out of character, and he looked startled, and he said, oh, my goodness, there's been a robbery at Woolworths. And really I don't was... think it had anything to do with the directors. I, I think it was because uh, he just didn't always take the profession as seriously as he might have. Which was it because he took this profession more seriously Hello? than anybody in the first ten years? Hi, Rabbi. I, I can I can't really hear you. Ah, okay. I'll, I'll get close. See, this is this is what happens on the the uh, the phones here. Can you hear me a little better now? Yes, sir. Oh, good. Okay. I'll I'll shout, which is what I'm used to doing anyway. Now, what about a nice Jewish boy? Named Steven Spielberg, who was who was going to make a little movie, a little shark movie, called Jaws, and you're saying that he really did not know whether or not the film worked or whether audiences would would buy it. When did yeah, he know? Uh, the movie took a lot longer than it probably uh, he intended it to because it was uh, Spielberg's decision to film the movie in the middle of the ocean um, because uh, Martha's Vineyard. Because he wanted to turn the camera entirely around, and, and then the audience sees nothing but ocean, so there's no place to escape for the three shark hunters. So it would add to the suspense of the movie. Well, the problem was, um, and, and this is pretty famous, the mechanical shark didn't cooperate. It, it worked great in freshwater uh, at Universal Studios, but when they put it in salt water, it got all corroded and, and sunk like a stone. And, and so the movie was delayed for months and months. That that wasn't the only problem. There were uh, weather problems and other boaters coming out, which nowadays could probably be removed by by uh, computer generated uh, technology. But but back then, if you had another boater in the shot, then you had to move your boat to some other location, and then the shots didn't always match. So by the time the movie was finished, uh, Spielberg was sick of the material and didn't know what he had. 
and they had a preview of Jaws in Dallas, and Spielberg was so nervous, he thought, I might never work again, and he was standing up in the back of the theater, and about 18 minutes into the movie, the shark attacked its second victim. Uh, a man near the front row got up, ran up the aisle, ran past Spielberg, and Spielberg's thinking, oh, no, they're running out of my movie, and the man lost his, his meal. He, he threw up and, and uh, couldn't even make it to the bathroom. It was on the lobby floor, and Spielberg's like, oh, no, my movie is making people sick. And then the man cleaned himself up and resumed his seat. And for the first time in months, Spielberg relaxed. And he said, if this man is sick and he still wants to, to uh, see the end of this, I've got a winner on my hands. And, and that turned out to be absolutely right. Uh, Jaws at the time was the biggest hit ever, making over $100 million in 1975. And movie tickets at the time cost $2. Wow. And then I will say that, you know, I did my own live stage performance in New York just a couple of weeks ago. And I knew when people would leave the first or second row to go into the lobby and vomit and then they would come back. I knew I had a hit on my hands. It happened every night. I'm telling you. So we're talking with Stephen Showhead, the Very author. Good. Well, Spielberg set a precedent for for, for, for uh, movies that are hits and make you make you vomit. I guess. Well, a lot of the, I guess the horror movies of that era or even the late '60s were, were delving in that as well. But right. let me ask yeah, also, like the Exorcist was as actually two years before Jaws, and that that was famous. Uh, although the Exorcist was different from Jaws because it didn't get previewed. Uh, because they were afraid of critical reactions, so they wanted to release it into the theaters before the critics got a shot at it. But but Jaws was uh, a little bit more traditional in that the critics saw it and, and mostly liked it. Um, and, uh, but The Exorcist made made a lot of money before before the uh, critical word got out there. Cool. We're talking with Stephen Showhead, the author of Hollywood stories. He's telling us some of the anecdotes, and there are many, many, many more in the book. So we're asking him just some of these wonderful stories about the people that we all know. Tell us a story about who almost was the Terminator. Oh, yeah. Um, well, you, you know, James Cameron, he had uh, made a movie called The Attack of the Piranha, uh, Piranha 2, The Spawn, and he was very disappointed by, by the quality of the movies he was directing, and he decided to go the Stallone route and write his own movie, and, and, and he, he came up with the idea of the, the robot from the future coming to the, to the present and attacking people, and he thought, well, it won't cost that much. The, the studios won't balk at the budget because I could have a human actor playing the robot and, and film out on the street. And, and, and he sold the idea to uh, Orion Pictures, and they had a lot of casting suggestions, which James Cameron didn't, didn't really like. And one of the, the casting suggestions was that Arnold Schwarzenegger could play the good guy, Reese. And Cameron thought, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, you know, I saw him in Conan the Barbarian. He's so wooden. And so he decided to have lunch with Arnold Schwarzenegger and insult him during the lunch and, and break off the work relationship before it even started. And so they, they were there having lunch, and Cameron was thinking, oh, you know, I can't insult him. He's too nice. And look at those arms. He'd break me like a twig. And, and, and I didn't bring any money anyway, so Arnold's going to have to pay for the lunch. And, and he had a lovely time with Arnold. And at the end of the meal, he was thinking, you know, I can't see him as Reese 
but I could see Arnold as the Terminator. Uh, it sure is better than the other stupid suggestion the studio made. I, I mean, who could imagine O.J. Simpson as a killer? <laughs> Absolutely and, true. O.J. Simpson never would have been... did. Cameron never did have lunch with O.J. Simpson. So <laughs> it's a good that, thing, that too. Was, that idea didn't go anywhere. Because uh, that would have been a pain in the neck, literally. No, I don't know what that means. I, I need my, uh, my rim shot thing going on. Let me ask you, there's also a cute story. Since, um, well, speaking of murder, Batman has been in the news in lots of different ways over the past couple of months. There's a very amusing little tale about Adam West and, and his uh, acting companion on the TV show Batman and uh, the Bat Pole. Please tell. Yeah, uh, I, I'm actually, uh, I don't have that one in this book. I'm actually going to use that one in the second book because, you know, this book I, I already have a th- over a thousand stories and I had to pick a stop date. But I'm always uh, uh, picking up new stories. And, and it was a story about Adam West and Burt Ward and uh, the way they used to uh, change into Batman uh, was that um, they, they would uh, say to the bat poles and they'd be dressed up in their millionaire clothes or their normal clothes and they they would slide down the bat poles and they would land in, on a mattress and then there would be a the second shot which would that show them sliding into the bat cave with the batman and robin all, outfit so one time they said to the bat poles and they slid down 15 feet and adam west ended up landing on a wino who had somehow snuck into the studio uh and was sleeping it off so so it was uh, quite an unusual encounter they, they had a lot of interesting things on that show. Can, can I mention real quick Please. That, that that show at the time, despite Batman not being a very big selling comic book in 1966, was one of the hottest things in Hollywood, and it gave an opportunity for a ton of actors who weren't getting as many movie roles to, to get some massive TV exposure, and practically everybody wanted to be on that show. In fact, Frank Sinatra was asking if he could play the Joker, and that didn't work out. Um, at one point, Clint Eastwood was going to play Two-Face, but the series was canceled before before um, that had an opportunity. And the only guy, as far as I know, who wanted nothing to do with the show was Spencer Tracy. And they offered uh, the producers offered Spencer Tracy the role of the Penguin, and he said, I'll do it under one condition. I get to kill Batman. <gasps> and it didn't work out. Wow. Uh, yeah, I, I, I do uh, have a lot of Batman stories in the book, as a matter of fact, because the origins and the history is, is, is very interesting. And I, I just mentioned the Christopher Nolan, um, you know, with these Batman movies. It's, it's really interesting who he based the character of Batman on. The, the Christian Bale Batman was based on Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, you, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, when he was young, uh, he was very sickly, asthmatic very weak, uh, um, and, and then uh, as a young man, he had a tragedy on the same day his, his mother died and his wife died. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and he, according I to I hope he put down the gun. Suicidal, and he <laughs> went to the Dakota Badlands, trained himself, and became uh, obviously a much fierce, fiercer, more physically fit guy. And then he became the New York police commissioner and used to ride his horse through the streets and slam people with a paddle. And he was the inspiration for this latest incarnation of Batman, although Batman uh, obviously has been around since 1939, and he's been uh, inspired by a lot of different things, depending on who's 
guiding him, uh, who's writing him, or who's uh, directing him, or, or you know, who's in charge. I have to ask, um, even going b- before we were talking about Batman, you were mentioning that, that great story I never heard about uh, Spencer Tracy and his reaction to even being asked to be on a TV sh- show. But do you have any uh, Tracy or Hepburn stories or bogey stories? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I do have a, a number of uh, Tracy and, uh, stories in the book and a number of Catherine Hepburn stories, and I, I think I only have one to, uh, about them together, and it was, um, it, it was uh, people might remember the movie The Aviator, where, where uh, Howard Hughes uh, had a bit of an argument with the Hepburn family. Well, well, Tracy used to get invited over to the Connecticut house, uh, you know, in Fenwick of the Hepburn family, and, and one night they were... Uh, having this big argument about how to help the poor people and, and, and Tracy just couldn't take take it anymore and he went out onto the porch to, to get to have a smoke and he looked up and he saw this poor uh, uh, looking fisherman uh, uh, apparently Mexican looking fisherman and and, and he, he uh, the, the man was on the Hepburn property and he looked totally lost. And Tracy yelled inside, Hey, better better get another plate ready in there. The poor are here to collect so old man Hepburn, Thomas Hepburn, he came, Dr. Hepburn, he came out to, to the front porch, and he saw what Tracy was looking at, and he started yelling at the poor fisherman, hey, you, you, you get out of here, I'll stick the dogs on you. And the poor fisherman went running for his life, and Spencer Tracy was staring at, at Dr. Hepburn in astonishment, and, and Dr. Hepburn said, I know what you're thinking, and you're absolutely right. We have to get the alarms fixed. And then the family went inside and resumed their discussion on how to help the poor. Oh, that's so, that is so 99%, 1%, isn't it? That's a, what a story. Thank you for sharing that. That's great. Um, and and any, any Humphrey Bogart stories? Yeah, yeah. I got uh, different stories uh, uh, about Humphrey Bogart. Uh, you, you know, with Casablanca, uh, for example, um, it was an interesting time in his career. I, I mean, Jack Warner one time had had referred to Humphrey Bogart as being ugly, um, and, and he was actually at the time losing his hair. Things were difficult with his wife, uh, third wife Mayo, so he was lacking confidence when when he uh, was going up, uh, uh, going to be Ingrid Bergman's co-star in 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 Casablanca and, and love interest, and he went to. Uh, his buddies like Raul Walsh and Peter Lorre, who co-starred with him in the movie, and he said, how can I get the audience to believe that this beautiful woman loves me? And, and, and what they advised him was to stay still, don't move, let her do all the work. And, and that's exactly how he played it. And, and, and uh, uh, I mean, it was very, very effective, partly because of the way Ingrid Bergman acted, um, that, that she had this way of acting like she was always, Sort of studying her leading men's face and trying to read them, and and and, and uh, it just came off so effective with so much chemistry. And from then on, Humphrey Bogart, uh, who mostly, I, I mean, of course, he had played Sam Spade, but he had mostly played gangsters before that, uh, was considered to be a sex symbol um, for pretty much for the rest of his life. And he was very surprised. Um, that, that that happened. And I'll, I'll tell you another person who was surprised about that whole movie was Ingrid Bergman, because when she was making that film, and, and this is kind of famous, she, did, she didn't know which one she was supposed to love, Humphrey Bogart or, or, or uh, 
Paul Henry. Right. Um, and they, she was told to play it in between, sort of. And, and and she was more concerned at the time about getting the role in the movie For Whom the Bell Tolls. Um, and, and she didn't think much of Casablanca. Uh, and then... And then, of course, it won the Oscar, and, and, and uh, she didn't really have a close relationship with Humphrey Bogart off-camera. In fact, um, uh, there are many stories that Humphrey Bogart's third wife, Mayo, who, who was uh, kind of menacing, and they were fighting all the time, was standing behind the camera, uh, keeping her eye on things to make sure things didn't get out of hand with, with Bergman. I mean, Bergman, fairly or unfairly, was was at least accused of committing or having affairs with some of her leading men. And and so anyway, she she didn't want to talk about Casablanca, and for years she would talk about it with disdain, and she would say, oh, I had all these great roles, and all anybody ever wants to talk about is this thing I did with Bogart. And, and then in the 60s, um, the late 1960s, she, like a lot of actors in Hollywood from the 30s and 40s, started doing college uh, retrospectives of their movies. And so she was at one uh, university, and they showed Casablanca, and she watched it with an audience, possibly for the first time. And, and, and uh, after the movie was over, she walked up to the podium for questions and answers, and she was a little bit dazed, and she was in a good mood. And she, she looked out at the audience and said, wow, that was a really good movie. Wow. I mean, it was the first time she truly stepped away from it and realized, you know, even I, I guess they don't even know when they're making it. You, you, sometimes it takes the, the years or... Boy, I, I'm yeah. sorry, Rabbi, I'm not hearing you. Oh, um, uh, doesn't matter. We're talking with Stephen Shohet, who is the author of Hollywood Stories. It's available at hollywoodstories.com. Now, please explain something. This is a book. Did, is there a hard copy version of this? I also see on the website they mention an e-book and audio books. Could you explain all yeah, the things uh, you're offering? Yeah, I, the, I have um, a hardcover and an e-book. Um, my I I actually have two audio books, but they're different projects um, that I did earlier. One's called Tales of Hollywood. One's called Fascinating Walt Disney. But they're original audio books. Um, I, I'm a tour guide in Hollywood, so that's how I started collecting all these stories to tell people on the tours. And, and then I had the idea the stories could be told anywhere. So my first project was the audio book Tales of Hollywood. My second one was the audio book Fascinating Walt Disney. And this is uh, my third project. This is an actual print book, The Hollywood Stories, um, short entertaining anecdotes about the stars and legends of the movies. It's available in hardcover and in ebook. Hardcover and ebook from Stephen Shohet, S-H-O-C-H-E-T, if you're looking for the book um, at the website and on Amazon, of course, and the other places where you get, uh, where you get books, actually. Now, before we get to some more celebrity anecdotes, I want to hear your anecdotes. I mean, how long have you been a tour guide in Hollywood? Uh, about 20 years, and uh, uh, what happened was I, w- I was a writer and um, I was a limousine driver because I could um, I could write while I was waiting for people in the limos, and and uh, then I was asked to give tours, and uh, I, I found it very interesting. And I did yeah I didn't know that much, but I knew a little bit. And I and I just said, well, I heard this anecdote, I heard that anecdote, like like uh, uh, just just various things that I had come across, and it got a really good reaction. And so I decided to do it full time just because I thought it was more creative and interesting um, than than being a uh, a limousine driver at least from my perspective and 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 what I tried to do was um, you know I 
uh, um, collect as much material as possible, and I still do, because the tour, you have to see the same things all the time, but the material, it, it, it's just unlimited pretty much. I mean, like if you talk about the Chinese theater, for example, and, and, and you talk about Sid Grauman, I, I, I mean, he was a really wild character. He was a really interesting man, and and, and uh, he used to play these wild practical jokes. Like, like for example, he found out that Ernst Lubitsch, um, the director, was flying on an airplane from uh, Los Angeles to Santa Barbara in 1933 um, to... Uh, uh, um, for a movie premiere, and, and Lubitsch was terrified of airplane flying, and he asked Grauman to come along um, to keep him company, and, and Grauman played a practical joke. He hired a couple of stuntmen to dress up like airplane pilots and fly in the cockpit with the real pilots. So, so during the, the airplane flight, Grauman was trying to make Lubitsch as nervous as possible, and he said, look, Ernst, look out the window. Look at those beautiful jagged rocks below. <laughs> and and, and uh, Lubitsch uh, said no thanks, and he lit up a big cigar, and the two phonies came out of the cockpit into the cabin. Mr. Lubitsch, Mr. Grauman, terrible news. The plane is running out of gas, and they jumped out with parachutes. <laughs> and, and Lubitsch ended up swallowing the the cigar and fainted and and uh uh luckily recovered from mild heart attack <laughs> and uh uh you know I, I don't tell that story every tour because I, I i try and get enough stories where i could vary it up and, and keep it fresh and and keep up with the modern people the modern stars too because there's always stuff going on in hollywood so so try and and have it be uh you know a combination of vintage and modern and and uh well can, well, can uh, i ask you know um, it continues can uh, i ask even do uh people can find out i do speaking engagements if people would like to you know a day full of stories uh, they can find out at hollywoodstories.com and i do private tours and and try and branch out and and uh uh you know keep it fresh uh both in the material and in what i'm doing Stephen, can i ask you um, have you had close encounters of a celebrity kind? Yes, yes, uh, numbers of them. I'll, I'll tell you a story. When I was a limous- before I became a tour guide, when I was a limousine driver, I drove a wonderful man, uh, Sammy Davis Jr., and um, he was just really, really nice. Uh, I, I didn't drive him that far, but he sat in front with me, easy to talk to. But right before I picked him up in his house in Beverly Hills, I was talking to his security guard. And I, 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 you know, I was waiting outside. I said, is Sammy a nice man? And the security guard told me a story that, that he had uh, uh, six celebrity clients, and, and um, he had broken his leg, and he, you know, he had no security, job security, being a security guard. He was a freelancer. And he didn't know where his next paycheck was coming from. And, 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 and so he got out of the hospital, and, and, and uh, he went to the mailbox, and he's, he's thinking, oh, these unpaid bills, what am I going to do? And, and he opened the mailbox, and the checks from Sammy Davis Jr. had never stopped coming. And, and Sammy never said a word about it. And he said, now, now I only work for him. You know, he's such a wonderful man. And so I, I, I said, that's great. And I noticed there was a, a, a plaque by Sammy's front door, and it said, this house welcomes anyone with peace and love and brotherhood in their hearts. And I said, oh, that's so nice. And the security guard said, well, confidentially, if anybody climbs over that fence with peace, love, and brotherhood in their hearts, I'm going to shoot them dead. <laughs> well, you can, you can tell Sammy was only half Jewish if he had a plaque like that, let me tell you. Well, he was, yeah, he was, uh, I, I mean, he just, 
you know, I, I only had a brief encounter with him, but he just seemed like a, just a wonderful, easygoing, uh, uh, really nice guy. The only sad thing was when I saw him that, uh, you know, he, he was walking with a cane. He just had a hip operation, and, and uh, you know, for somebody who made his living the way he did, to, to not be able to dance, I, I'm sure was a frustrating thing. And then, of course, uh, only about a year later, he died of throat cancer, so... Uh, but but yeah, you know I have stories uh, about the whole Rat Pack actually. But Sammy's the only one that I met, and and then you know Lucille Ball, I used to see her all the time, and James Stewart and George Burns, and and, and uh, 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 they, did you? I, I mean, I've, I've did you talk know, to them? Did they just wave or or you did, know a word I don't want to use? But I, I've seen a lot of people on the tours as well. Jack Nicholson, Johnny Depp, uh, you, you know different people, and I'll tell you who was really nice was Jaja Gabor, um, and, and there used to be a store called Fred Heyman's on Rodeo Drive, and unfortunately it's no longer there, but um, uh, she uh, uh, actually met my customers at Fred Heyman's one time and took pictures with everyone, and, and uh, I just was uh, you know, a really big fan of hers, and, and she's still alive and, and not in the best shape, so I'm sorry to read about that, but, uh, you, you know, one of the things about Jaja Gabor was she always went with Bob Hope to entertain the troops. Bob, Bob Hope was turned down by a lot of different stars because of difficult working conditions sometimes, uh, going into combat zones and things like that, but Jaja Gabor, anything she could do for the troops, she would do, and they had the running gag where they come out on stage and Bob Hope would say, Jaja, is it true you don't have any domestic skills at all? And she said, what are you talking about, Robert, darling? I'm a great housekeeper. Every time I get the divorce, I keep the house. <laughs> That's a good line. That's very good. By the way, I, I need to tell everybody, it is 11.01 in the morning, Mountain Time. We're at the University of Northern Colorado doing the radio program Dave's Gone By, which airs 10 until 1 in the afternoon on Saturdays, every Saturday on uncradio.com. I happen to be Rabbi Sal Solomon and very excited to be talking to Stephen Shohet, the author of Hollywood Stories, where he's telling all these wonderful anecdotes about famous movie legends, legends that we all know about, but maybe we don't know some of the funny, bizarre stories that uh, they had in their lives. And I really also want to talk especially about the comedians, because I'm, I'm fascinated by them, and you have such wonderful tales of them, so uh, give us give us some stories about the great comic actors and comedians of times gone sure. by. I, I'll tell you uh, a story about Bob Hope. Um, what, what, of course, he entertained eleven presidents, and the first one, of course, was President Roosevelt. And, and it was in 1944, just at, just before Roosevelt uh, finished his uh, his fourth term, uh, which of course was on. Our, our, our his fourth term, which he, did, he didn't finish, but uh, for his fourth uh, election victory, which, of course, will always be unprecedented. And, and, and so there was this crowd of luminaries, and Bob Hope was telling the story about uh, there was a, um, a serviceman, a Marine, who was very disappointed that, that during the war he hadn't yet killed an enemy combatant. So he went to the edge of the jungle and yelled out, to hell with Roosevelt. And, and a Japanese uh, soldier came out of the jungle and said, oh, yeah. Oh, wait, I'm telling the story wrong. He said, right. to hell with Hirohito, excuse me. And a Japanese soldier came out and said, oh, yeah, to hell with Roosevelt. 
and, and the Marine lowered his weapon and said, darn it, I can't shoot a fellow Republican. <laughs> and Roosevelt, uh, 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 Bob Hope said that Roosevelt laughed so hard that he almost considered voting for him. <laughs> That's great. That's what... And, uh, and uh, I'll tell you a story, uh, uh, you know, uh, about uh, the, actually the very first story in my book um, it, it, it was a story a man actually told me on the tour. Um, the day before he went on my tour, he had taken his family up to Universal Studios, and they were going by where Alfred Hitchcock made the movie Psycho. So the tour guide was talking about the movie and how they filmed it, and, and all of a sudden a man came out from behind the Bates Motel with a wig and a dress and a knife. And everybody was laughing, Norman Bates in drag, and the tour guide says, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know who this man is, and, and he's not part of the tour. And, and, and so now everybody's kind of alarmed, and, and, and uh, you know, they're wondering what's going on here. And, and, and so this Norman Bates uh, lookalike guy comes running toward the tram, yelling and screaming, and he raises the knife, and people on the tram started screaming, and he took off the wig, and it was Jim Carrey. <laughs> He was making the movie up there, The Man on the Moon, and he had a little downtime, and he decided to scare everybody half to death. And then the nice part of the story was that afterwards he took pictures and signed autographs. Do you know why gun control is important? Gun control is important in America because Jim Carrey would be dead right now if we didn't have it. You know, people like that who think these things are, are so amusing. It's just like, you know, back back in the day. But tell me, tell us some well, more. Well, you know, he, he wasn't the first person to do that. You, you know, he used to do that at the very beginning of the Universal Tours was the cast of McHale's Navy. Ernest Borgenine, Tim Conway, they would dress up as natives and run out behind the bushes with spears <laughs> because that show was filmed at Universal Studios. And, they, and, and one time a lady got so scared she fell out of the tram and, and the orders came from uh, above that... Uh, they better stop doing that. Oh, my God. That's hysterical. More comedians. People like uh, you have a story. I, I love this story. I and mean, it, it, it's a little surprising to me because I only learned recently that Charlie Chaplin, who I always thought was Jewish, was apparently not Jewish. He did the great dictator. He did the thing. But now there isn't a Jewish bloodline in Charlie, unfortunately, alas. But there's something very Jewish about the story of Charlie Chaplin and Jackie Vernon. Could you tell that, please? Yeah, it was uh, 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 Jackie Vernon really admired Charlie Chaplin, like like so many comedians did. He was he, he was the hero, uh, uh, you know, for Chaplin, and and for years he just he sent him all these letters after Chaplin uh, was was sort of kind of exiled, I guess, to to Switzerland, or you know, he chose he chose to move to Switzerland too, but. But um, anyway, uh, um, uh, what, what happened was is that, that uh, uh, you know, finally he never got a reply on any of the letters, and finally he said, well, I'm going to stop sending them. So anyway, it was uh, one morning in the 70s, and, and uh, he, uh, Vern, Jackie Vernon happened to be in London, and he went into this restaurant, and he sees, of all people, Charlie Chaplin. I, I mean, it's flesh and blood. It, you know, you know Charlie Chaplin's in a wheelchair, and things weren't weren't uh, weren't. Uh, I mean, he didn't have that much longer to go. He passed away in 1977. But but Vernon, you um, walked up to the table, and he said, uh, "Mr. Chaplin, I've always admired you and wanted to meet you. 
my name is Jackie Vernon. And, and, and uh, you know, so the old man repeats the name thoughtfully. He says, Vernon, Vernon. So why did you stop writing? <laughs> love that. I, I don't know why I love that story, but I just do it. So he doesn't bother to reply to the letters, but then it's like, oh, you stopped writing. Why'd you do that? I, don't, I love that. Tell right, us. Right. Well, he was definitely a character, you know, and, and that's the, the, the whole thing. Uh, um, uh, you know, there's an, another story. Um, uh, and, 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 and let me say, some of the stories in the book, I, I call the book a, a mixture of biography, history, and lore. And so some of the stories, uh, I, I have to say, they, they could be apocryphal. Uh, and, and I try and tell the reader, you know, that they, that they might be apocryphal. But, but there's one story about a young soldier who went and saw a Charlie Chaplin movie. Um, and and it, around 1917, he said, oh, this little man is amazing. He's a subversive. He kicks authority figures in the rear. And yet the audience isn't threatened by him. Why is that? It's the mustache. The mustache makes him seem like a harmless clown. You know, I'm going to grow a mustache like Charlie Chaplin, and that way people will trust me, thought Adolf Hitler. Oh, and, uh, I wonder. And I'll tell you, um, one of the interesting things about the history of Hollywood was that it was helped greatly by World War One, because World War One. Um, during that time, the European film industry pretty much came to a halt, and, and, and the American film industry started traveling around the world, and since most of the movies were being made in L.A., that's when L.A. really started to become uh, more of a boomtown because of the growth of the movie industry, because of the worldwide distribution. And you look at the silent film stars, I, I mean, uh, again, it's a disputed thing, but like Charlie Chaplin, Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pickford, making um, about a million dollars a year, although Mary Pickford did dispute that number at one point, but that was what was being reported. And, and to put it in perspective, the average house in L.A. cost two thousand um, dollars so so the, the 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 fact that the silent films their movie their i mean their stories traveled so well they had worldwide understanding um, um led led to them getting enormous salaries and hollywood uh becoming a major business and a major player on the worldwide uh, on the uh, stock market and 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 get, getting tons of people to move out here and try and become part of that business. Let me ask uh, Stephen Shohat. We only have a couple more minutes, but I, I, there's a couple more wonderful stories I would love for you to tell about the comedy people, and they're all in your book, Hollywood Stories. First of all, uh, the Three Stooges. Tell us about that relationship between Mo and Larry. Yeah, it's a real interesting relationship that they had. Uh, um, the, the three stooges because they were different people now of course there were only two stooges unfortunately that were consistent the whole time because the the other ones uh well the the other ones passed away um the i, I mean the the curly of, of course had heart problems and and uh uh shemp all of a sudden just shocked everybody and just just died, uh, you know, out of the blue, whereas Curly was sick for a long time. And then you had uh, uh, Joe and Curly Joe, uh, and, and Joe Besser didn't like to get hit. And, uh, you know, Curly Joe came later when they were doing more, more features and less shorts. 
But but uh, the interesting thing was the, the relationship between Moe and Larry, whereas Moe was uh, a, a you know, workaholic and a bit nervous uh, a lot. Larry was like a carefree, happy-go-lucky guy. And, and the interesting thing was that, that Moe um, was extremely well-to-do uh, be, because uh, he invested his money very wisely and was a homebody, a family man, whereas Larry was... was uh, a gambler and, and and just gave away money and forgot about it and then and then borrowed money from Mo and for, would forget about that and paying him back and and uh, you know Larry would would be constantly uh, undependable when it came to doing scenes because he was always listening to the Dodgers on the radio and his wife uh, Mabel didn't like to do housework so they spent a lot of times in hotels in Atlantic City. And, and Larry at one point estimated that he went through $10 million. And so when they finished uh, um, their their shorts, because see, see, the Stooges, they made shorts from 1933 to 1958 at Columbia Pictures. And the head of Columbia, Harry Cohn, just loved them. But they got a maximum salary of 60000 a year divided by three. And oh. once they got that salary, they never got a raise. And and uh, they were a little bit afraid to ask for a raise because because by that time uh, in the 50s, Lowell and Hardy and Abbott and Costello and, and uh, uh, the Marx Brothers were pretty much doing features uh, only. Uh, I mean, Lowell and Hardy had previously done shorts, and none of the studios were doing any shorts except for Columbia and the Three Stooges. So so when they finished, um, I, Mo was planning uh, to, to travel, and, and he was rich, and Larry was completely broke and, and planning to manage apartment buildings. And, and there was an element in Mo that thought, serves him right, you know, he, I, I mean, he wasted all his money, he never listened to me. But, but also, Mo remembered that when Curly was sick and unable to work, that Larry had voted that Curly still get a full share. And, and Mo was deeply touched by that because of course, Curly was was uh, Mo's brother, and Larry wasn't, and, and and so Mo started looking out for Larry and making sure that that he still had work. And of course, then the Three Stooges movies started showing on TV, and suddenly there was a demand for them uh, to to keep having the live appearances. But but you know, despite the fact that Mo was rich and Larry was poor, Mo, Mo stayed the the nervous wreck all the time, and Larry. Even when he moved into the motion picture home for aged actors, uh, really kept his carefree attitude. That's wonderful. I, I love that story. And we have time for one more last story from Larry Showhead. I want you to tell us. I'm sorry. Wait, wait, wait. I'm, I'm saying we, we have time for one more story from Stephen Showhead. Please, everybody, his book, as you've been hearing for the past 40, 45 minutes, is Hollywood Stories, Short Entertaining Anecdotes About the Stars and Legends of the Movies. You can get that at HollywoodStories.com. That's also a great place to, to learn about Stephen and his tours and his life and his e-books. Um, I want to thank you, first of all, for being such a, a fun and informative and delightful guest on Dave's Gone By. I, I, I think it's just wonderful listening to you. I could, I could listen for another hour to all the stories that you have, but please end this with a story, a happy, nice story about, of all people, W.C. Fields. Uh, you you asked me for a story about W.C. Fields? The, yeah, there's a really nice story in the book about Fields. 
Yeah, uh, what was it the uh, the uh, uh, Christmas story? I think where where uh, uh, yeah, where uh, W. C. Fields he goes into the um, uh, he's at a train station at, at Christmas time, and, and uh, he was 15 years old, and the manager for the vaudeville act that he had been part of had, had taken all the employees' money and had run off, and so he was stranded out there. And he he said, uh, you know, how much for? He walked up to the ticket window and said, how much for the for the train ticket uh, to to get back to Philadelphia? And the man said ten dollars. And and Fields didn't have anywhere near that kind of money, so he said, I see. And he sat down. And, and the man said, you're an actor, aren't you? And he goes, yes. And he goes, well, that's a tough profession sometimes, isn't it? He goes. It, yes, it is. And, and, and the man said, here, son, I'll tell you what, it's Christmas. I'm going to buy you the train ticket. And Fields started crying. And, 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 and the man said, you know, pay me back when you can. And so Fields was just so moved. And two years later, he paid the man back. Um, and and uh, uh, it, he, he had absolutely no money. And because he, he sent the man... He sent the man ten dollars and another ten dollars in gratitude, and, and and because of that, Fields ended up spending that Christmas two years later in a soup kitchen. Wow, is that just just it's an amazing, you know, it's a, and of course maybe three years later, Fields were going to be able to pay him back triple without even thinking about it. But but back then it was I like that I like that story a lot and I like the book a lot Hollywood stories by Stephen Showhead Stephen. Thank you. Happy High Holidays to you. Best of luck you with too, the Robert. book. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. It was just a delightful. Have a great day and a, a great holidays. Thank you so much. Bye-bye now. Thank you.
uh, stories and songs of fame. David Bowie there, of course, classic with a riff taken. I, I never realized that for many years, a riff taken from James Brown, I believe. But certainly Bowie made that song his own fame, that being the uh, live sta- the live version of the song from the stage album by Bowie. And, you know, I didn't tell you way back when what songs we played in our Saturday segue to begin the show back at 10 o'clock. So I'm going to do that now. We heard in our our Yom Kippur Atonement Saturday segue, uh, among others, Brenda Lee doing I'm Sorry, Peter, Paul, and Mary with Apologize from their Late Again collection, classic recording of... Um, Kurt Cobain and Nirvana doing all apologies from the MTV Unplugged collection. Shuby Taylor doing his magical scatting on Who's Sorry Now. Lucinda Williams with a Live at the Fillmore version of the song Atonement. And we will, if if we have time, play some more Yom Kippur and... Uh, apology and atonement songs towards the end of the show, but we got so much more and else to do. In just about 10 minutes, we should have legendary New York disc jockey Carol Miller on the phone with us, talking about her years in, or, well, in radio and behind the mic at some of the major radio stations in New York, Rock Radio, WPLJ, WNEW. She's still on the air at WAXQ in New York. You can still hear that very, very well-known, famous female DJ rock voice. We'll be talking about her autobiography, her career, um, her medical battles that she has had, and also her love life. Ooh, some famous people in there. All of that coming up on Dave's Gone By. Also, uh, we'll have our Inside Broadway segment where we'll be giving news of Broadway, Off-Broadway, and local Colorado theater. And let's see, Rabbi Sal Solomon, who did that wonderful job interviewing Stephen Shohet just a couple of minutes ago, he'll be back giving his weekly rabbinical reflection talking about the Day of Atonement coming up. So going to be great, but before we do anything else, it is time to thank the people who make this program possible on UNC Radio. First of all, this program is brought to you by Hewlett Minuteman Press, the copy kings of Broadway. Since the mid-1970s, the Toron family has owned and operated Hewlett Minuteman Press in the heart of Hewlett, Long Island. It's the place to get copies, printing of things, your Logo on a mug or a pen or a golf ball or a calendar, or if you need to send out holiday cards or wedding announcements and invitations, Hewlett Minuteman Press is the place to go. It's part of the, um, you know, it's a franchise thing of the Minuteman chain, but you got to go to the ones in Hewlett, Long Island, A, because they're such great people, B, because if you go there and you tell them Dave sent you, from Dave's Gone By, you get 10% off any copy job, big or small. Hewlett Minuteman Press across the street from the Lomans and just a couple of blocks from the Hewlett train station. Their number, 516-569-5577. 516-569-5577. Hewlett Minuteman Press, they are the copy kings. This program is also brought to you by TotalTheater.com, a wonderful free 
website where you can read reviews of theater from around the country and around the world and also stories and articles and interviews of the people who are making theater. So just go to togletheater.com and check it out. All you got to do is click on Criticopia for reviews of the latest shows on Broadway, off-Broadway, and everywhere else. Plus, you go to our, um, oh, what's, what's the word? I'm blanking. There's Criticopia. Periodica. And that's where you can read the stories and the interviews. It's all at togletheater.com. And you should know that Togel Theater is the parent company that puts out the journal Performing Arts Insider. Since the mid-1940s, Performing Arts Insider has been the Bible of Broadway. It's where people in the industry go to find out exactly all the information that they need about every show on, off, and off-off-Broadway, as well as having calendar listings for opera and dance and awards and special events going on in New York City. If it's going on on stage, Performing Arts Insider has it on the page. Go to performingartsinsider.com for more information and to subscribe to this incredibly beloved and valuable journal that really tells you everything, performingartsinsider.com. And finally, I want to give a shout-out to Jeff Goodman, my good friend, who is the uh, owner and proprietor of Fancy Schmancy Balloons in... Um, Long Island. So if you're having a party of any kind in the tri-state area, get in contact with Jeff Goodman, except I don't, <laughs> I don't have his phone number in front of me. Oh, I'm so sorry, Jeff. Uh, and I don't think he has a website. So you know what? You'll have to listen to me next week, <laughs> and I'll get, um, I'll get Jeff's number again because he changed it a couple of months ago, and I don't have the new one on here. But a shout-out to him. Happy New Year, my good friend Jeff. And let's do... Rather quickly before we get Carol Miller on the air, the, um, the sponsors and the friends of this radio station. Because, yeah, I can have my own sponsors from a show, but you know, I, I'd just be shouting into the atmosphere if it wasn't for UNC Radio and the folks who help us stay where we are. So I'm going to let you know, first of all, um, how far can you see? It's hard to imagine thinking about your future, but before you know it will be here, Goal Academy wants to help you set and achieve goals to prepare you for whatever lies ahead, whatever you want to be. Cosmetologist, zookeeper, military captain, let Goal Academy decide what you want or help decide what you want to be when you're grown up. They have structured flexibility with block schedules that allow students to move forward in a curriculum at a pace, keeping you on track to graduate. You can plan for the future, and you're eligible to participate in local school activities or start your very own club at Goal Academy. So visit Goal Academy Fort Collins today or call 970-518-1150, or G-O-A-L-A-C. Goalac.org. Letting you know about some bands that are playing in the local northern Colorado and Denver area. At the Fillmore Auditorium, you've got Rise Against. They're going to be playing September 24th and the 25th. Seether is coming to the Fillmore on October 13th. For tickets, go to LiveNation.com. Taking Back Sunday is at Denver's Ogden Theater on October 14th. Made, by the way... Well, obviously, my show has Long Island roots. They started in Amityville, New York, and now they're, they're all over the place. Ta- Taking Back Sunday, October 14th at the Ogden, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers playing Denver's Pepsi Center on September 27th. And hey, cool, on November 3rd at the Fillmore, it's Primus, the, the 
punk funk combo, uh, the folks who did that theme song for South Park. They're going to be at the Fillmore on November 3rd. And I think that, uh, that takes us through our sponsors. And so as we, um, as we prepare for the one and only Carol Miller to be visiting our airwaves, let's play a little bit of uh, some classic material from WPLJ. I, I realize she was on... WNEW for more years than she was at PLJ, but I just somehow identify her more with that particular classic rock station when they were just defining what classic rock was. And um, this actually, she's introducing here a very cool segment that was put together by Pat St. John. And what he did was, and this is back, this is pre-digital era. He was working with, I guess, tape and with um, razor blades and a little bit of uh, cement to glue ends of tape together to put together this medley of how great WPLJ was by using these very little snippets of the classic rock songs of the kinds that they would play. And so it's kind of neat and a lot of fun, and it's one of those guessing game medleys where he'll play two seconds of a song, and then you're like, oh, wait, what was that? And, you know, most of them, and then some are like, what? But have fun. I think there's a, a couple of hundred in here, and I'll play it um, you know, up until we get Carol Miller on the phone and with us. But this is, this is going back, oh my God, 80, 90, 30-something years to the heyday of PLJ. Here's Carol Miller introducing the Pat St. John montage. Carol Miller, we're just about ready to roll Pat St. John's big montage. Bill Moser, my engineer, is ready. Get your uh, thumb ready to hit the button there. This is the thing that Pat put together with uh, over 300 songs, he says. There are approximately 350 edits. This is all those things we run at the top of the hour, all put together. It's kind of a one-year celebration. About a year ago, Pat started making these things. and uh, He ran this uh, feature on his show last week, and now it's my turn because a lot of people did not get to hear it. So let's see... And let us hear the big montage.
cities, the place where the city They have a medley there put together by uh, Pat St. John back in the heyday days of WPLJ Radio in New York. And I was growing up during those heyday days, and I was deciding what kind of music that I liked. I mean, I liked eclectic music. I loved rock and roll. I kind of moved towards um, the deeper cuts on albums and things like that. But if you were into the serious definition of classic rock, the, the station that defined that pretty early on, right into the early 1970s and beyond that, was WPLJ, and one of the great voices of that station at the time, and then someone who also went on to WNEW, which was, was my favorite station for many years, was Caller, excuse me, Carol Miller. And not only was she doing this radio 30, almost 40 years ago, She's still doing radio. She's still in New York on WAXQ, Q104.3 FM in New York. She also has her autobiography out called Up All Night because she was there in those crazy nutty days of program directors and, uh, you know, people from, uh, well, rock bands coming into the studio and meeting these people who would soon or eventually become famous. She has all sorts of wild stories about the wild days of rock and roll radio. Um, she played it a little too wild this week. I, I just before we're, we're getting her on the air here, I will warn you that she's got a bad cold. She's been running around a lot doing interviews, um, you know, promoting the book. And so of all things, we've got one of the great voices 
in rock radio, and her voice is shot. She has the flu, and and she's still getting over it. So, um, you know, I apologize for uh, for making her be on the air with us, but um, I, I do want to do this interview. We're going to keep her time a little shorter than I intended, just for the sake of her throat, which is still her career. But we are nonetheless very excited and happy to have with us in the neighborhood, Carol Miller. Carol, can you hear me? Are you there? Well, I can hear you, but uh, it's very, very low. If you can boost up your volume, it would be great. I, w- I will do my best here because, um, you know, I, I, if I get too close to the mic, I start popping a little. But is this better? Well, a little better, but, you know. Okay, I'm, I'm, I popped I'll, it up a little I'll, more. I'll hang with it. Hang. Um, how are you feeling? <laughs> well, this is, this is, you know, really, really funny. Um, I have the world's worst flu, so I can't talk. And I'm a DJ. So it's an occupational hazard. But you see, my point in life is you go to work, you go to the job, you go to your appointments, and if they don't want you, they'll send you home. So I'm here. If you don't want me, send me home. Well, I certainly want you. I, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on the air. I just, if your throat really starts to give out, let nah, me know. Don't worry about it. Great. But let me ask, so th- this is an interesting question for someone who's been in the, the radio and announcing business for so many years. Obviously, you've had colds before and times when you had to go on mic. What did you do? Did you just play more music? Did you use cough drops? Or is, that, is it that thing where sometimes when you're on the air and being a DJ, you're magically healed for four or five hours and then you get really sick again? Well, no, it's... Um you know, when you're on really big radio stations, they really don't want you on the air like this. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not the way I should be doing my show. That being said, you know, I've shown up and they go, no, no, you don't sound good. But I don't have a, that's not really my big problem in life. I don't, I haven't had a, a lot of this. It just happens to be now, you know. Um, when you're the host, if you, if you were the guest, like I'm the guest, it's funny. You can laugh at me. Because I'm the guest. I will. But I will laugh at when, you. Yeah. Well, you're the host. You can't do that. So, you know. Well, cool. Well, well let's, let's talk, though, about radio. And your start in radio, the thing I, I had no idea about is that you were a law student at, Hofstra, at Hofstra University. And you, yeah. You, you came out with a law degree. Did you take the bar? Yeah, I did that. Well, actually, I started in radio as an undergraduate while I was at the University of Pennsylvania. And... Um, I then, I was working in Philadelphia, from New York, but working in Philly, while I was uh, still an undergraduate, then I decided to go to law school, and I went to law school uh, during the day, and did radio at night. And, and how did you, <laughs> how did you manage to do that? I would figure it takes every minute yeah. of your life, an ounce of strength, just to try and learn all the law. I mean, were you an okay student? Well, I'll tell you, um, if you... I, I, hopefully you hear my book that uh, and why I wrote the book, I'll tell you in a minute. It's pretty funny. But, um, you know, when you come from a background that, you know, you think you got to, you know, you're no good or you have to be a professional, you just do what you have to do. And the radio business wasn't really a business. It was my hobby, even though it was my job. So I uh, continued to go to school like I was supposed to. And, um, yes, I had absolutely no time for anything, but it was good training. Because now I have no time for anything either. <laughs> well, you have, I guess you just mentioned that you have written your autobiography. It's called Up All Night, available from HarperCollins, pretty major yeah. publisher there. A couple of things we want to know about the book. First of all, it's about your life, your career, 
Also, let's get this out of the way immediately. If you plunk down your hard-earned cash to buy this book, which you should, you. you get or you give 5% of that, of what you pay for the book. Royalties, yeah. Go, oh, the royalties go to, tell us. The Breast Cancer Research Foundation, which is uh, really one of the best research, cancer research uh, organizations. They do all these uh, play for pink things. And um, they're just wonderful people. They've made a lot of progress. And uh, so, you know, there's uh, an MO that goes to buying the book. You know, you're, you're helping somebody, too. Now, for people who may not know or remember or, or know your whole story... No, they're... nobody knows my story. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, then tell us, why would you specifically being, be giving 5% of your royalties for cancer research and breast cancer research? Well, up until now... Even though I've been on the air all these millions of years, um, I've never told anybody, but I've been a pretty serious cancer patient and kept it to myself. And um, the only reason I'm, I put it in the book is because if somebody asks you to write your memoirs, well, you got to tell what happened to you. So um, this is kind of a way for me to, uh, you know, help out, give back, blah, 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 et cetera. But um, the, the interesting part is that... Um, I was never going to write a book, which is what I was going to hope you, you were going to ask oh, me. Oh, sure. Yeah, but go so ahead. I got, a, I got a letter from the publisher saying, you know, you've been on the radio for a million years. You must have stories. Uh, would you like to write your memoirs? And I thought, well, that's ridiculous. All they want is a bunch of gossip. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. What if they don't? What if I can do something different and do something semi-worthwhile? So what I tried to do is what I call a cultural chronicle and take it from the point of view of a kid who's growing up in America in the middle of the 20th century and sees all these things happening. You know, I'm still that kid, but I saw television come in, you know, um, all the radio, I saw, I was there when JFK, you know, all these things happen. And I, I was pretty much on the scene for a lot of different things. And so I try to reflect that in the book. And I also try to reflect the, um, the FM radio business got to be the business it is. And so I think it's a story. It's not just for people who like radio. And I was very, very um, appreciative that I was given this opportunity because, hey, how many times does somebody walk up to you and say, hey, you want to write a book? Oh, you know? yeah, no, I mean, that, that, I wish somebody would say that to me. <laughs> yeah. I keep pitching. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's great. And plus, you've had the life to write about between being in the radio, between your personal life, between your, your history dealing with and being a, a cancer patient. See, the, the, not to dwell on the big C, but the initial cancer stuff, the breast cancer stuff, that's already going back, what, 25 years? Yeah, see, I don't, I don't you know, people have heard enough about this stuff in, in the media um, and I didn't want to make the book about that. When I started with it, um, you know, you didn't talk about it, and I've had other problems with it. But let's just say that um, it's something that I've uh, taken along with me, and I have the best people at Sloan Kettering, and I think that in today's day and age, um, if you can keep something under control, you don't have to put your problems on everybody, and that's kind of one of my points, you know, it's like, um, it's great to contribute to charity, which is why I am contributing to charity, and maybe you will by buying this book, but the best way you can get, contribute to charity 
to keep yourself from getting sick and having to rack up medical bills. Well, wait, 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 wait. I don't think people can, unless you know, you're you're mean staying away from like uh, power no, 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 lines no, no, or something. You can't keep yourself from getting cancer. No, 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 no. I'm I'm talking about uh, <clears throat> absolutely not checkups and, and stuff like that. Oh, all right, yeah, that was... yeah, yeah. I know. I was just going off on a kind of a funny tangent. You know, no, in general, cool. people um, often don't uh, look after themselves. Then they get sick, and then they rack up their own medical bills. But not particularly in this case. Uh, if you look after yourself, you'll save yourself aggravation and everybody else. Okay. So I'm saying that with tongue in cheek. Oh, that, oh okay. I'm, that, yeah, that, that's great. That's yeah. right. And, I, and I, it's not that I want to make you dwell on the, the medical stuff. It's just it kind of no. shocked me that you had the story from, from years ago, and then two years and then two years ago something yeah. else came up. That's what I'm talking about. It's like well, no, yeah. it, if you have it, it sticks with you. And you never know. And uh, I'm just lucky that I get to fight it. So that's just kind of a sidebar in the book that, you know, um, you can do what you do and not make it your whole life, you know? Okay. Let's, let's move away from the medical. Yeah, right? yeah, now, yeah. Into the fun stuff, in, into the, the stuff about radio and, and then your social life, too, you know, because that, that's in the book sure. as well. So, okay. You're at, I guess, um, well, PLJ. Let's uh, you know, let, let's yeah. let's get to that big station, that that famous station. It, it was one of the defining sounds of that era of discovering that kind of music. So, was how much freedom comparatively did you guys have as DJs at PLJ, or did it sort of morph while you were there, and the suits had more and more, and the advertising people had more and more say? Well, this is a um, a very interesting subject which I, I wish I certainly had a better voice for. But, you know, it's, it's a blanket perception that um, freedom is the best thing for everybody at every radio station. And what I'm trying to tell you is if you, if you are, in tr- are trying to play the music that most people want to hear, and you're also trying to find out what most people want to hear, and the availability of the music there's just so much of it. Well, how would you as one person know that? So in the early days of progressive rock, of course, well, if there are 10 albums, you play 10 albums. But as hundreds of albums start coming out, how do you know? So you, uh, I don't like, you know, quote-unquote research, but you have to use certain methods to find out what people like, including uh, how, many so- how many albums are selling, does this artist sell? Do people like this person? And so it kind of gets all bundled up into what people call a format. That can be taken to extremes, of course, but um, what I'm saying is it's not. The freedom thing is a strange issue that uh, if you like what I play, why do you care whether or not I selected it? That's my question. Oh, my gosh. Um, well, if you're willing to have a debate about this, I mean, I, I wish you did have, have a better voice and I wasn't stringing it you know, when, when you're, for you when you're talking yeah. but it, it can be argued and I would certainly argue I mean I'm not an anarchist by any stretch of the imagination but for me a responsibility of a DJ is not only playing what people like but in some ways to say to people you know if you like this you're going to you like, like that. you're going to check <laughs> this out and this is, what, and this well, is so different you might like this you know, too this is a whole other discussion well, we're it is talking a, about um, when you're running a business the business 
of these big radio stations. See, I'm talking about walking the line, staying in the business, getting to do things, and still having the business end of it. Because if the commercial end were not there to support playing some of the new music that we do, um, we wouldn't get to do it at all. So you have to you have to go right down the middle with it. What I'm saying is you have to to look into what people like, what is the what do the majority of people really want to hear, and then give them a little bit of the other stuff if you want to stay if the business wants to stay on the air, and that's what I'm talking about. Okay, that that's that's fair. Well, a couple of well, but that also leads to a couple of questions. I mean, you are and have been uh, talent in in full capital letters and quotes talent for forty years. Then, then, but you think in some terms like a program director or station. Yes. Oh, have you done some of that? No, but uh, uh, when you when I started as a progressive jock, I always kind of um, had my own format uh, because my idea, you know, when I was starting in progressive radio in 1971, is listen, I'm doing a show for people, so I had. I would come up with, in, let's say I'm going to play three songs in a row, three records. One of them will be something brand new, maybe, that I can introduce. One of them will be something they already know that they're going to like. And the other thing will be something a little deeper from one of the albums that they may have. But that so is... I kind of came up with the idea for myself, uh, presenting my own shows, because it's human nature to, uh, well... You can only accept so much new material at once True. and really recognize it. For but, example, yeah. if uh, you heard a new song and you only heard it once and then you heard ten other new songs, you might not remember that one new song that you liked, but if you heard that one new song, some stuff that you knew, then you heard that new song a few hours later, you probably remember it. And that, that is all absolutely true and correct. But at the same time, you were given at that point the freedom, freedom to develop to that format. It, it was your, I, your yes. thing. So you weren't told. You, you, you developed for you yes. what worked for I you, this idea of, you know. Um, I yeah. think it's interesting. I mean, all kinds of discussions are interesting. But, uh, you know, I, I was a biology student. I, was, I got into medical school. I didn't go. But if you are in that area like science, you know, everything kind of relates to biology, and there's a reason why people are wired up a certain way. And we're just wired up to, uh, you know, have a certain uh, familiarity with certain sounds, et cetera. I, I mean, I kind of knew that. So just hitting people over the head with a lot of unfamiliar stuff, even if people say they want it, they're not going to be able to, to accept all of it. It just doesn't work that way. True. No, I mean, I mean, I'm. I'm about it. I mean, even the, everybody will yeah. say the same thing. I want to hear new stuff now, 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 now. But then afterwards, they want to hear something again. You know, it, it's it's all of it is uh, Darwin's in there somewhere. And I'm <laughs> saying this tongue in cheek, but it's true. Yeah, no, I'm not disagreeing at all with you. But I mean, I, I guess the and, and we're almost uh, having a mega argument because we're kind That's of on right, the same page. Like I'm, I'm sorry. What was that? What was that? I said, yeah, but I like these kind of arguments. Oh, yeah. But, well, they're, they're fun. You know, that, fun, this is fun, why fun. we do radio. But what, what, um, we're not actually disagreeing. But the, the point is, you know, you, as you said, it can go to extremes. And you get people oh, absolutely. in Texas picking a playlist of 40 songs 
and then that's it. And that's supposed yes. to be format. That's, that's the extreme. You see, once you get people in there who um, only see one side of it, uh, you're going to have extremes in either direction. And what I mean is if you want to run a business, you want, every, you want to uh, play music for people, they're going to like it. You want to introduce new music. You certainly don't want to uh, have it so rigid that you're going to only hear 40 songs and never hear anything else. And some people will say, but see, these are the 40 songs that people bought. You know, and they'll use that as an example as research or something. On the other side is the guy that says, no, I'm going to play whatever I want, and I'm going to introduce them to everything. But at the end of the day, each side is a little too extreme to get the strike right down the middle. That's that's totally fair. I mean, and also, you know, you if you were uh, the kind of radio station either at PLJ or NEW right. that was so freeform that some you would play a country song, then you play the Rolling Stones, and then you play like a twenty-minute Haydn symphony. I mean, then people would be, you know, there's no format there. I understand well, I'll that. I'll tell you something. Um, this whole thing about formats is, is another subject. But when I was at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, that was the first type of show that I did at WSVN. It was called Phase Two. And it was actually a learning experience for the students. I mean, you know, it was like a, uh, a routine where you'd pick something from classical, then bluegrass, then rock. You know, it was very extreme like that. But it, it kind of doesn't make sense to people, but it was, it was a good learning experience. But the formats that I've worked in have all revolved around... Uh, you know, rock music, new and or old, and you just made it, and, and what is rock music? You just said something very interesting. You might play a country song. Well, as you know, um, the, the, what people are calling rock music now is so limited that a long time ago, you know, the Eagles, that's country music. That's country music now, but it was rock music then. Think, think about how many groups uh, would not be called rock music now. It's, it's ridiculous. Well, I, I agree also with the limitations of terms as far as what we define. Right. I mean, rock and roll should be hugely broad in terms of terms. By the way, I have to say we're talking with Carol Miller on Dave's Gone By. She is the DJ at WAXQ-FM in New York. That's Q104. Q104 is what it is. 1043 in Q104. Um, and let's see. She also, also on Sirius XM. Ah, Cool. And she's the author of Up All Night, her autobiography, um, and, and that's available in all the usual places you can get autobiographies, and HarperCollins. Yes. Uh, and about I, think it's a, it, I think you'll have a good laugh if you read it, and also there's uh, stuff to, you might find interesting, and uh, there is a charity aspect because 5% of the royalties go to the Breast Cancer Research Foundation. Now, can I ask Carol Miller why... Um, why you left PLJ? Was it a money thing? Why did you go from PLJ oh, to no, NEW? No, 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 no. Okay, tell me. Why did you leave? I would have stayed there forever, and it is in the book what happened. PLJ was the America's largest rock station, and the, uh, we, we called it AOR, album-oriented rock. And in 1983, uh, with all kinds of things happening, the advent of MTV, which I talk about, and how the videos affected the radio programmers, etc. Um, our director, whom I'm still very close with after all these years, a wonderful man named Larry Berger, 
he changed the format of the station from quote unquote rock AOR to top 40. And the reason he did that was because they felt that with the new wave coming in and some of the old rock being, uh, people were kind of confused as far as the listening audience. That's what the programmers thought. And they saw this whole MTV thing coming with all these uh, pop singles coming up. And I talk about that in the book. So they, he actually changed the format of the station. I still didn't leave because, you know, there are shades, I hate to use the term now because of that silly book, <laughs> right. shades of gray. Yeah. Um, you know, you call one thing rock, you call something else not rock. But as it turned out, he fired me and he fired um, the other people who are ju were just representative of real rock radio. And so that's why I left. I was fired um, because of the format change. But but here's the, here's my question: Isn't even though you're you're still good friends with him, you, isn't that the kind of stupid corporate radio thinking that that we should all be fighting against? Um, well, let's see now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, here it is in a nutshell. Because guys, my friend. He says now he said he, he probably wouldn't have fired me. Here's the deal. Everybody should be allowed to, you know, just because I played a rock record doesn't mean I can't play another one. Doesn't mean that's the only thing I can do with my life. Just because, you know, uh, somebody made a funny analogy with uh, Gilligan's Island. Hmm. Whoever was the skipper, he can do something else besides be the skipper on Gilligan's Island. But no, when you work in that business, they want you to be the skipper. Oh. So what I'm saying is the business, yes, does lock people into things like that, and it really, really shouldn't happen. And, um, but it did because I became very, very identified with uh, rock and Zeppelin and everything. And it's a two-sided prong. I mean, for a while, you know, it's kind of like these, these guys, like, like Robert Plant. I'm, I'm not comparing myself to Robert Plant, but he goes around thinking he has a solo career. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, he does, but uh, everybody else thinks he's in Led Zeppelin. So that's that's the that's the point. You do get kind of locked into something if you have an identifiable job, and there's just so much you can do to um, counteract that. However, in the case of a DJ, I think it was a little extreme to say, well, this DJ only plays rock records. So... They can't play the other record, you know? Cool. I don't know. No, no, I, I, think, I think you're absolutely right. By the way, I, I need to tell people that it is just after 12 o'clock here at the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley, Colorado. You're listening to Dave's Gong By on UNC Radio, the radio station of the University of Northern Colorado on uncradio.com. I'm Dave Lefkowitz. We are listening and doing Dave's Gong By on UNC Radio. My guest is Carol Miller, legendary New York disc jockey. She's on a 104. Um, in New York, that's WAXQ. I guess it's Q1043 is what you yeah, said. Yeah, Q1043, you know, if you have iHeartRadio, all this stuff, uh, there's an app, you can get all these radio stations. It's Q1043, New York's classic rock. So, I also have a syndicated yeah. show, speaking of Zeppelin, Get the Let Out, and it's on a bunch of stations around the country, and I'm on uh, Sirius XM, so 
I'm just pretty busy putting out the patter, so to speak. Well, that, that's what it's all about. Now, now let's, let's get to some anecdotal things of your yeah. years at PLJ and also at NEW. We got to talk about that, that young, shy, giggling guy from New Jersey. Yes. Tell us about him. Well, one of the, the great things that I've been able to do is uh, meet people who became superstars, but before they were. And sometimes you just knew it. When you saw that person, you knew it. So um, I was going to school in Philadelphia, and going to uh, Ocean Grove Community College was a guy who used to write for his uh, college magazine called Bruce Springsteen. And people kind of knew that this guy was writing a lot of good stuff. You know, it was just the underground word, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, he played around the area, and then he put out a record. He got signed in 1973, and at the time, I had graduated, and I was the music director at WMMR in Philadelphia. And, of course, that gave me, uh, you know, all the records would come in, and they were all great at that, in that era. We'd play them, so I got to meet Bruce Springsteen. Uh, I got to actually walk up to him and say, you know, Bruce, this is just great. I, I just got a job in New York coming up, and I'm going to play your record there. And so um, I became the first person to play the record at Springsteen in New York. The crazy part was that um, that was only by default, because Mm -hmm. in the same way that we were already playing the record in Philadelphia, WNEW, the station in New York, should have been playing Bruce Springsteen, but they were having a political fight with his manager. (laughs) So I didn't know that. They hired me. It's free form. And I played it anyway, so it was a moot point. It was all over. Huh. That's, and, and who were some of the other folks that um, you, know, you knew before the rest of us knew them? Oh, gee. You know, there were just so many people like, that I met on the way up, like, um, well, from the old, old days, old, old. Like, you know, Jackson Brown and, uh, let's see, Warren Zevon. All these people were uh, Bonnie Raitt. Bonnie Raitt. Mm-hmm. Um, showed up with her test pressing at my college station. Um, she came in, WXPN, she said, I have a record. And, you know, the funny thing is that I see some of these people now, and they look like my grandparents. And I'm not trying to flatter myself, but I figure maybe I'm like Zelig or something, you know? It's <laughs> like I keep seeing generations of people coming by, and I'm still playing records, and I laugh at myself. Um, but yeah, Bonnie Wright, I mean, I'll tell anybody, Duran Duran, I saw them. It's just very, very funny. The pick an artist, I'll tell you if I saw them their first time. And um, wow. I have a lot of interesting stories in the book. Uh, Billy Joel, uh, not all of them are, are in the book, though. not all the stories, but Billy Joel, his first uh, radio concert was uh, in Philadelphia. Oh, wow. Um, played the university. And there were a lot of people who really uh, played... Um, in the same way that you might have indie groups now playing, and there are just so many of them that you can't keep track. Well, there were some major, major artists that became major artists that were doing that at that time, and there were fewer of them. So Simon and Garfunkel, although they had started already, but they still played in my college, you know. So, but, um, but I would love some ancient a- history there. I would, I would love some anecdotes, though, of, of like people like Warren Zevon or Simon and Garfunkel. I mean, you know, not just that they were there and you saw them early, right, but right, any right. any stories about them. 
Well, I think because my voice is kind of shy. Oh, sure, of course. Um, I think, and it's also in my best interest to tell you that I've got some really funny stories in the book about Aerosmith. About well, there's Smith. a reason for that. I mean, you were, <laughs> you and so, Steven yeah, Tyler. Listen, you know, yeah, that's the point. Um, I've got some funny stories about uh, about groups and artists, and you know, it's not like it's all gossip or anything. But uh, backstage, let's say at No Nukes, No Nukes concert, which became famous. Uh huh. Um, some of the stuff that was going on. I have a lot of inside stuff in the book that I think um, people will get a laugh out of and also give you a little insight into what makes what made a lot of these things tick. And um, so for me to, like, tell the story right now with my voice sounding like a clown, it, it doesn't pay, you know? All right, well, well, I'll tell people then to go to the book for the, uh, the Steven Tyler stories because, uh, you know, that's right, a major... Yeah, well, I'll tell you one thing about him. Sure. Please. Start, that's how the book starts. But if you read the first chapter, you will see that he's the kind of person that still needs he needs supervision. <laughs> and you know, people have images of these rock stars, etc. But quite often, um, a lot of them really are very, very nice, but childlike. And that's why they get themselves into all kinds of trouble. And it's pretty pretty fu- funny and scary at the same time. So m- the opening chapter of the book, I think you'll get a laugh out of. At the same time, you'll go, oh, for goodness sakes. It kind of sets the tone. So, um, <laughs> Rock I, and roll. I, yeah. I, I have yeah. Funny, so, you know, there are only a few artists that I really think don't fall somewhere in that uh, category. That are brilliant, geniuses, responsible people. They know what's going on, and they've been in charge all these years. One of them has to be Mick Jagger. Mm. Forget about it. I mean, um, I interviewed him a couple of years ago. Right on the money, no ego. He has kept this thing going. And Paul McCartney, you know, there's just a few people who don't have the artiste mentality that manage to be right up front and artists anyway, if you know what I'm saying. Well, speaking of Paul McCartney, I should lay in there that way, way back when Paul had just you know, been done with the Beatles and did his first concerts with Wings in town, you know, you met him for the first time, this big yeah. exciting thing, oh, Paul McCartney, and then um, he actually, what did he say to you? He actually invited me to come to the show because um, I had, apparently he and his wife were listening to me on the radio when they were driving out to one of their first shows with Wings at uh, Nassau Coliseum in New York. And I had said that uh, listeners were calling to say that the previous night's show was excellent and that they really liked the musicianship of Wings. And so he uh, was very appreciative, so he invited me to meet him and Linda. I went to the garden, and this is back in 1976, so I tell a funny story about having an audience with a Beatle, and uh, how preposterous that was to me. And I think, uh, you know, that's just one of the stories I, I tell there that I, I hope people will get a nice... Oh, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, of. one of the things also is that he, he told you that he and Linda listened to your show and listened to yeah. you on the radio. That's kind of that's neat. I don't know whether well, he was making that up to be nice now, or, you know. Hmm? T- uh, today's day and age, well, day and age is an old term. We have so much media thrown at us from all over the place that... You don't know where you heard anything anymore half the time. 
Hmm. But when you have a limited number of sources, uh, it's and you're on one of them, it's pretty uh, influential. And you see, that's really what's going on with uh, the, the confusion in radio, et cetera, et cetera, today. Is it, well, where's the source of all the information? You, you can't have a thousand people listening to a thousand sources. So when you had a few sources and everybody listened to them and you were on one of them, boy, you were in the hot seat. It was good. It was it was great times in a lot of ways. Yeah. I, uh, I I know your voice is going. I, I know I've kept you longer than I promised I would. We're, we're going to let you go in like another after one more question. But sure, but sure. I, I will I will invite you back <laughs> you know, in a couple of months when your when your voice is oh, fine. Yeah. I'd love to come back to be a, to, um, con- to be continued. I think you're a very very skilled and interesting interviewer. Oh well, thanks. And I think the joke's on me because you know it's like you know what I say. It's like. If my uncle ran the traffic bureau and I I could get all my parking tickets fixed, but I didn't have a car. That's what it's like today. I don't have a voice. Oh, well, just today. You'll, you'll be fine in like two more days. I'm actually yeah, taking yeah. A, a voice and speech class at the university here just for fun. So I can give you all oh, these okay. tips on, on hey, taking care. You know? hmm? um, to be honest with you, yeah. this is very debilitating. And um, it isn't. A psychological thing. What's going What's going around in New York? Believe it or not, yeah. is whooping cough. <gasps> wow. I have whooping cough now. Why? It's an antiquated uh, illness. You think we've all been immunized? But what happened was, apparently, um, there are some uh, mothers, young mothers now, who do not feel that um, immunization. That right? they want to give yeah. their children vaccines. And I think they're a little uh, misguided because some of these illnesses that were vanished are starting up again. Bubonic so, plague is back. You know, there's people yeah, with a plague. So people uh, are susceptible to it, and I am because, you know, I say I'm a cancer patient, so my immune system, blah, blah, blah. Oh. Anyway, so what I've had is whooping cough for the last couple of few. I've been carrying it around. Now, that being said, what's your remedy for getting your voice back? Well, I don't have a remedy for whooping cough, but we were just all, all the usual things that you've heard as, as a DJ or, or being in the business, most of them are true. One thing I learned is that for cough drops, menthol is not necessarily a good thing. Stick with okay. um, just sugar, even like sugar candies are, are perfectly fine, or ludens instead of, instead of halls, because you don't want anything drying up your saliva well, and your mucus. See, I'm, I'm always willing to learn. Yeah. Any new information is good information, Dave, don't you think? Well, well, absolutely. And and or well, of course you want to be, see if it's logical and if it works for you. Well, Neti yeah, pots are pretty I'm, good. I'm saying this tongue in cheek. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, you, I, there's nothing I can tell you. Forty years in the radio business that that you don't already know. So much well, of it is. There is. You know, yeah. somebody did tell me something. What? Do you have you ever heard of Joan Hamburg? Oh, of course, at W O R. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, Joan Hamburg is, um, well, I don't know. She's in her 80s or something, and she's still on the radio. Let me tell you something. Joan Hamburg, if she says she went to a particular restaurant, her listeners go. She is a very powerful woman, and so I had not met her before. Well, there was a function at uh, the company that I work for, because uh, WOR is now owned by the same company that owns my station, ah. and we got had a mixer, and I met Joan Hamburg, 
And besides the fact that uh, she was really, really nice to me uh, and invited me on her show upcoming, she said, you have to use my drink. She mm. says, you, you go to the store and you buy the turmeric, the spice, T-U-M-E-R-I-C. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And put uh, like a few tablespoons in the hot water with a little red pepper. And, you know, look, I'm a scientific person. Most of this stuff, who the hell cares? But you never know, right? If, it's not, if you're not going to waste money, why not? It actually is helping. And you put a little honey with it. It tastes disgusting, but it works. Yep. Hey, that, that's, that's – I mean, I'm um, not to get too off track, but when um, my wife or I had a cold a couple of, of years ago, we found an old Russian remedy for like the phlegm and the cough and all that stuff. Oh, what was that? But I, I honestly don't remember that much of it, but it was pretty gross. It was like this thick concoction of butter and honey and oh, milk. Yeah, yeah. You would figure that'd be all bad for phlegm and things like that. But no, it brings the stuff up. You, you have to, you you have know, to drink it hot. That's the thing. Yeah. We're dealing with an illness, in my case, whooping cough. They banished it 100 years ago. Well, they didn't think it would come back, so they never found anything new to deal with it. So I say, let's go back to the Dark Ages and... Uh, grew up some of that stuff, you know? Yeah, what were they using way back when to make people feel better? Well, you know, this is way off the topic. Sure, but... Um, they had something in uh, um, Russia, Romania called cupping. Oh, yeah. C-P-I-N-G. Mm-hmm. Where they would actually um, take, like, a glass cup and uh, light a little fire in it, get the air out, and stick it on somebody's chest thinking that the uh, vacuum was going to draw out all the few, you know, fluids and stuff. I mean, there was some nutty stuff going around. Oh, they, they, still, they still do that. They're, in Jewish, we call them bonkus cups. You put them on oh, and they, that's what I'm talking about. you get these blue, black and blue things on your body. But it, yeah, I don't yeah, know if yeah, it was... Yeah, yeah. It, it was actually just bringing more blood flow to that area. So there was logic behind it. Well, yeah. <laughs> and people still do it. Nose. Well... Any, my God, well, boy, have we got off topic with Carol yeah, Miller here well, on. You're da- a very interesting guy. I like that. Well, well, and it's it's been incredibly interesting, and and you know, if people didn't know, you know, because Carol Miller, of course, has been in radio for all these years. She's a beautiful woman, sexy voice, sexy oh, woman. I so you figure, so. oh, she she wouldn't be intelligent too. But of course, we've we've spanned biology and law. And history of rock, and she's written a book, Up All Night. It's yes, available from Harper Collins. And remember, if um, if you buy the book, five percent of the royalties go to cancer research. So that's that's, that's a major right. thing. Um, last and question. Never too old to rock and roll or anything else, whatever. Well, wait. Before I let you go, Carol. Before before yeah. I, I did want to ask one more question. I'm, sure. I'm going to give you the choice as to which anecdote you want to tell. They're both kind of short. I hope. Um, right. But since it's almost the Jewish holidays, we can either talk about having dinner with Kiss, or you can tell the Lily Tomlin story. Pick one. Oh, I'll, I'll take Kiss. Okay. Do Go for it. Two. Well, in a nutshell, um, back in 1977, uh, Kiss were at the height of their popularity. And, um, you know, I was playing them on the radio, and I come from a pretty, uh, well, let's say... Not orthodox, but not quite background. And I was supposed to be uh, looking for a husband, even though I was on the rock radio. That's part of the funny funny (laughs) things in the book. And from my neighborhood, in the book you'll see, 
I met these two nice guys, nice Jewish guys, Stan and High. Well, yeah. Stan is Paul Stanley, and High is High and Vitz, Gene Simmons. <laughs> and I went out with Paul for uh, a few months. We hit it off really well, and he was just like the great neighborhood guy. Meanwhile, this the funny part is that he was in Kiss, but they weren't touring at the time. So I never saw him in those costumes. And we used to, uh, you know, go to, like, delis and Jewish things, all kinds of stuff. And then uh, he left on tour. You know, he's 25 or whatever, and that didn't work out. Uh, but the funny part about it is that I write a whole story about how I was so stupid that I had no idea that a worldwide rock star who... Uh, has millions of girls uh, chasing after them, might not just want a regular girlfriend in time to settle down. Because that's what he seemed like as a normal person. So I have some funny counterpoint in there. But he's a great guy. And um, in fact, mm -hmm. he wrote me a really nice paragraph for uh, a press release for this book. Um, the back cover, I have Gene Simmons on it because his came through first. Um, but he wrote me a really nice paragraph about, uh, about you know, knowing me from, like, all those years ago and blah, 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 blah. And he's, like, a great family guy. And to this day, I can't imagine still to put on those clothes and costumes uh, what goes, goes through someone's head like that. It's still funny, you know? And since you knew them, you know, it's one thing to say I knew them when or before they were famous, but to know them when they're absolutely world famous and make no connection to the fact that yes. this, this nice guy at the deli who's, who's showing me, oh, oh no, you've got you to gotta trim the fat off that brisket, you know. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Five yes. days later is on stage playing for 80,000 people, you know, in, well, in I Tokyo. Well, i one thing. Yeah. Um, uh, he, when he was kind enough to, uh, he lives out in L.A., they live out in L.A., kind enough to write the, say that he would write a little uh, uh, quote for my book, for a publicity, um, you know, we went back and forth on the email. So um, he wrote back, one of the things he wrote was, um, hey, here, he was talking about the book, and he sure. said, hey, here's something I don't get to say that often. He wrote, mazel tov. <laughs> and I wrote back, as in, all right, people, mazel tov. You know, yeah. Uh, that it is the perfect story for the Jewish holidays, isn't it? So, yeah. and I wish you uh, certainly an easy fast. Although, if it's for your health, you should eat something on Yom Kippur just to keep your your, your strength and your. I know you and my grandma. <laughs> you should rest in peace. Just just call me Bubby Dave. That's all. Uh, Bubby Dave. Bubby Dave. Okay. Anyway, oh, but speaking, oh, you know, that was my last question for Carol Miller. But I guess we all do want to know: you're, Are you? What's your What's your social situation? Are you married? Um, seeing what's where are you at with that? Well, <clears throat> I um, I'm married. Mazel. I've been married uh, since, my, since 1994. Wow. Um, I have a wonderful husband. Who's in the music business? Is he Jewish? He uh, actually does. A, he actually is doing a lot of record mastering now, and he did a lot of the uh, hip hop stuff. Uh, he's a rocker, but he, you know, real pro top end stuff for Puffy and um, you know a lot of the R and B people in the '90s. He just uh, did the latest Anthrax record, as far as mixing. Um, he's doing let's see, Stone Sour. So he's an engineer, and. We've been married now for 18 years. Um, 
we don't have children because of my illness, um, okay. which people say, do you have kids or whatever? Uh, I would have liked to, but because I had cancer, I, I couldn't. Sure. And so I, I could say it that way, but I'm a good aunt, and I got a great husband, and um, I like to have a good time, you know? And I like to play records on the radio. Which is what life is all about, having a good time and hearing the music. That, that is the soundtrack to our lives. And yeah. it has been great, even with the whooping cough, even with the scratchy voice, it has been great hearing the musical sound of Carol Miller's <laughs> voice on Dave's Gone By. Everybody get up all night from HarperCollins Books. Last time to tell you that it's 5% going to cancer charity if you Thank buy you. the book. And, um, and how can people, I know you're, you're, you're as you said, on Q1043 in oh, New York. Oh, it's very easy. And you have a website, right? That would be... Well, yeah, I don't know. I'm on, on the station website. Uh, you go to... All you have to do, you can do two things. You go to q1043.com and it's listen live. Or you can go to iHeartRadio because they have about 800 stations around the country. And you go Classic Rock and it'll pop up. I'm also on Sirius XM uh, every morning on Channel 25. That's pre-recorded. Mm-hmm. So... Whenever that runs, that runs in the morning. And I'm on Get the Let Out on various stations around the country. But uh, Is there one website? Is there, there one? Really I'm sorry. The most important thing, yeah. what you are doing right now. So that's where my heart is. Well, uh, thank you. But is there one website where people can go for all your information? Do you have your own website? And then no, people... you know what? What? You know why? Why? Because just go to q1043.com okay. and you click on DJs. Because... I, I, uh, I have information about the book, blah, blah, blah. But like I said, I don't put out my own website. It's just too much. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair. You should only be always so busy that you don't have yeah. the time to make a website. That's my blessing for you for the Jewish New Year. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So mazel tov to you. Get better soon. Get better immediately. Carol yeah, I Miller. I know, By Monday I have to. Thank you so much for being in the neighborhood. It's, it's been an absolute joy, and, and, and hopefully in a couple months we'll have you back. I think that would be wonderful. Yeah, you won't recognize my voice, though. <laughs> it, will, it will be the, the same beautiful voice we've heard for 40 years. Thank you, Carol. And, Thank and you so much. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye now.
you hurt me and you make me cry. But if you leave me, I will surely die. Neil Sedaka here in the neighborhood with, oh, Carol, gotta love Carol Miller. So fun to talk to, so intelligent, and, and only wish I, well, oh, I certainly wish you were feeling better with her voice, but uh, only wish I could have told you more of the anecdotes, but you just got to buy the book up all night from Carol Miller and Harper Collins. You're listening to Dave's Gone By, just a couple of minutes away from 12.30 in the afternoon here, Mountain Time, uh, which would put in about 2.30 New York time, and wow, so much to do. I'm, I'm having such a wonderful time in this episode, but of course the clock is ticking and so much more to get done. Let's, let's get to Inside Broadway. Let's make sure that we cover the theater. Because as much as I love music, I love theater, too. Very important to me. So in Inside Broadway, we let you know what's happening on Broadway, off Broadway, the stages of New York, and also locally here in northern Colorado. And uh, just want not that busy a week in New York theater. So just a couple of news items to let you know. I want to give congratulations to Adam Guan. He's the winner of the Donna Parrott Rosen Award for Musical Theater. That's an award given by Second Stage Theater, which is an off-Broadway company in New York. He gets $10,000. Yay for him. Uh, what has he written? He's written Ordinary Days, which was kind of an off-Broadway hit back in 2009, and the musicals Cloudlands and Bernice Bob's Her Hair. So Adam Guan, winner of the Rosen Award given by Second Stage Theater. Uh, Letting you know that opening this Thursday, September 27th, the day that I'm having a tooth pulled, my wisdom tooth, (laughs) I sure wish I was somewhere else. I sure wish instead of sitting in a dental chair, I was sitting in a Broadway theater seat at the Samuel J. Friedman Theater, which is owned by Manhattan Theater Club, because they're doing a revival of Henrik Ibsen's An Enemy of the People. It's a new translation adaptation by Rebecca Lenkowitz, directed by Douglas Hughes, and it's a limited run. It's only playing to the middle of November, but it stars Boyd Gaines, who is like Broadway's beloved actor now. I mean, everybody remembers him, of course, from uh, playing Barbara's boyfriend on One Day at a Time. Grew up. He still has that, that... quality that he had there, even though now he's, I guess he must be pushing 50 or 60, but he's done a ton of Broadway shows over the the past few years. He's really quite terrific. Now he's in An Enemy of the People playing opposite another television fella, Richard Thomas, who's also given quite a bit to the theater over the years. So go see them in An Enemy of the People, um, courtesy of Manhattan Theater Club at Broadway's Samuel J. Friedman Theater. And also, this is your last chance to catch Porgy and Bess, or as they're calling it, the Gershwins, Porgy and Bess. It was the 2012 Tony Award winner 
for Best Revival of a Musical. And it has became, just a couple of uh, weeks ago, the longest-running production of Porgy and Bess ever on Broadway. It hit 306 performances back on September 11th, breaking the record formerly held by the 1953 revival at the Ziegfeld Theater. Well, anyway, the show is closing this Sunday, tomorrow, September 23rd, at the Richard Rogers Theater on West 46th Street. If you know about this Porgy and Bess, it opened with a lot of controversy around it. Uh, It was because it wasn't just the Gershwin and DeBose Hayward's book for it. Suzanne Laurie Parks adapted it, revised it, cut it down. And so to some people in the theater business, that was sacrilege. They're taking a classic, an actual real musical opera classic, and tampering with it and making cuts that made no sense or just chopping things and doing this to characters and this to the language and cheapening and whatever. And then there are other people who say, hey, look, you can always go back to the old one yeah, you know, people are artists. They want to change. They want to make it more relevant. They want something that isn't going to be three and a half hours long like an opera. And so that's what Suzanne Laurie Parks and the producers of this Porgy and Best did. I saw the production. I liked a lot of what it was doing. I had some issues with it. I did not get to see Audra McDonald. You know, she, she won the Tony for uh, Best Actress in a Musical in it, as she always does, you know. Um, The actress I saw was very good. Unfortunately, I don't recall her name. From hearing the cast recording, the original cast recording CD of Porgy and Bess with Audra McDonald on it, I get the sense that she overacted the hell out of it. She's certainly overdoing it on the CD, gorgeous as her voice may be. And maybe the way she played it on stage, her character's so big that we we buy into it and it wouldn't feel like overacting, I wonder. I certainly did like Norm Lewis in the part of Porgy. I like to hear him on the CD too. So yeah, I mean, my, my thoughts are a little mixed on the Porgy and Best, but I'm glad I saw it. And it was never boring. I was I was always involved in the story and I never had that investment that some critics and and Stephen Sondheim had. He was the one who really lit the the match that started this fireworks about the show with Sondheim saying how dare you mess with DuBose Hayward's original libretto? How dare you take this classic and think that you can shape it better than they did these geniuses way back when. And so there was the flurry back and forth almost killed bringing the show to Broadway. They almost didn't, they were playing it out of town. They almost didn't come when they got all this bad press about it. But they, they persevered. They soldiered on. And I, I'm for one, I'm glad they did. I'm glad I saw it. And as I said, I, I was not such a lover of Porgy and Bess and the old cast recordings and the movie of it or having seen it one time in an opera kind of a setting. I think they did it at Radio City or the Gershwin or some huge barn of a theater where I just felt so distanced from everything going on. I was bored out of my mind. So other critics, no, they love Porgy and Bess. They know the score backwards and forwards, and they know the book and the story. And for them, oh, oh, sacrilege. Not for me. I'm glad they did it. And if you want to see Porgy and Bess, you have, I guess, three more opportunities. Today's matinee, tonight, and then tomorrow it closes at the Richard Rogers Theater. Let's hear a little bit of Audra McDonald with the signature song from... Porgy and Bess, here's summertime. Don't you be 
What are we gonna do with this poor motherless child? What are we gonna do? Claire's last living word was for me to take care of her baby till she got back. Now she dead in the storm, so this baby belonged to me, seemed like. You low-life skunk. Don't you got no shame laughing at these poor women that's singing for Clara and for all the men lost in the storm. I ain't see the sense in making a fuss over a man if he's dead. If a gal loses a man, there's plenty of men still living what could pick up where he left off. Best don't want the likes of you. She already got a man. Oh, she got more than that, brother. Best got herself two men. Best has two men. Crown is dead. Or do you know different? I ain't telling you nothing. Audra McDonald there from the original cast recording of the new, the revival of Porgy and Bess. And how could I forget, by the way, I should have mentioned that the real thrill and joy of the production is David Allen Greer. I mean, he's just, you, you can hear him on that, that little clip of the talking before she starts singing Summertime. He's marvelous. So if there's a reason to see this Porgy and Bess besides the great songs, besides the story, besides deciding for yourself, whether what they've done is great or awful or somewhere in between, certainly he is just marvelous as sport in life, and, and his ain't necessarily so is totally worth catching. So anywho, that's Inside Broadway for this episode of Dave's Gone By. Ooh, 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 ooh. I, I forgot to mention a bit of local sad theater news. Uh, you have just a couple more weeks until October 14th to catch Once Upon a Mattress at the Union Colony Dinner Theater in Greeley, Colorado. Why do I, I mention this specifically is that um, the theater company has been around for, I guess, seven or eight years in that building. It's a dinner theater set up as such. They started their season with Titanic, uh, the musical, which I saw and which was very, very good. I was very pleasantly surprised. And they really did a very nice job. Brandon Bill directing and at the piano and orchestrating. He's kind of chief cook and bottle washer at the theater company. But the problem is, I mean, he's trying to do everything. And I, and I guess on some level it was a bit too much. And they have not had good luck, apparently, with their current show, Once Upon a Mattress. I don't know whether it's good or bad. I've heard different things about it. But I do know that once that's done, they're closing up shop. And the Union Colony Dinner Theater announced a couple of days ago that they're going out of business. So the, th- the building is still there. The theater is still there. The, the will still be there. Hopefully, I pray and plead with the owners of the building to keep it 
as a theater, as some kind of performance space. It's set up that way. It would be a real shame if they turned it into just retail or something. You know, so so if anybody has any ideas for how to salvage theater in Greeley that isn't connected to the, the university or isn't just touring and coming to the UCCC, I would love to know. I would love to know how a city, Greeley is basically a city with thousands and thousands of people, cannot support theater companies and, uh, that, that we really don't have any except you know a couple of little pocket community theaters and touring stuff and, of course, university. I mean, we, we can't rely on the university only for the theater that we get here. Must we all run to Denver you know, or Fort Collins or Boulder or, or even, I guess, Loveland to some extent? Can't we have something? I mean, there's the Windsor Community Playhouse. We do have that community theater that's on the, the tip of Greeley. Great. Fine. Still in Weld, Weld County. That, that's terrific. But I don't get it. I mean, shouldn't there be enough community here to support going to a theater that has done some good work? As I said, I don't know about Mattress, but Titanic was real good. And people have seen good shows at the Union Colony Dinner Theater. Do we have to run to, I guess, Johnstown? for dinner theater just because they have more money and maybe maybe that's a little better. You know, there's room for both. So I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to be giving that news if you haven't heard it yet, but certainly I would contact the folks over in that building, uh, you know, in downtown Greeley at the Union Colony Dinner Theater space and see what, what's doing over there, and maybe we can salvage something out of it. I, sh- I certainly hope so. Anywho, it is 10, 1240 in the afternoon here in Greeley, Colorado. I'm Dave Lefkowitz. You're listening to Dave's Gone By. I want to thank some of the folks who've appeared on this really fun episode. Stephen Shohet, who is um, the author of Hollywood Stories, definitely get his book. You've heard the wonderful anecdotes that he had to tell. So I want to thank him. Thank Carol Miller, certainly. She gave you all that information about her book, Up All Night, and how to get that. And thank you to Rabbi Saul Solomon, who uh, was interviewing Stephen Shohat before. But he, uh, Rabbi Saul is not done. He is here almost every week with his rabbinical reflection, his sermon for the week to, um, to give us his thoughts on the world at large and politics and society and whatever else. Well, we're only a couple of days away from the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And so it seems fitting that Rabbi Saul would, well, his sermon of the day, his, his preaching, has to do with Yom Kippur and apologizing and atonement and the way we all deal with that. So here, without further ado, he's putting on his talus. He is coming into the neighborhood as we speak. This is Rabbi Saul Solomon, the spiritual leader of Temple Sons of Bitches in Great Neck, New York, with his rabbinical reflection of the week. This is Rabbi Saul Solomon with a rabbinical reflection for the week of September 23rd, 2012. Repent! Repent! The end of the world is nigh! Repent! Just screwing with you. We'll be around for a little longer, but it's always good to take one day out of the year and apologize for all the crap we pull every other day of the year. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is not a get-out-of-Gehenna-free card. You don't confess and magically find yourself absolved and awarded with a Starbucks gold card. 
like it or not, you are still the same schmucky you. But at least you have taken a few hours to reflect upon your weaknesses, to wonder whom you might have hurt, and to ask God to take a little pity and keep you in the book of life for one more year. Notice I put God on the tail end of that sentence. There is no disrespect to you-know-who. And by you-know-who, I mean God. That's why I said you-know-who, because I just mentioned his name so you'd know who. He'd be fresh in your mind. If I'd meant Buddha, that would have been a surprise. You would not have known who. Or former Rolling Stones bass player Bill Wyman. That would have really come out of left field. You couldn't possibly have guessed who. Unless you were God, who knows everything. He knows who. In this case, it would be he. Horton hears a who, but he wouldn't know which who he heard. Unless God told him, he would say, Horton, you're hearing me. Now, go hatch an egg and tell Maisie she needs to atone. Which brings me back to my original point. The Day of Atonement is for people. We pray to God, we ask God's forgiveness, we repent our sins. But we do this not just to assuage the rage of a disappointed God, but to become better people, to realize that our actions have consequences that affect everyone around us. If we lie, if we cheat, if we buy retail, we create unhappiness in other people. Sure, most of them deserve it, but that's not our call to make. If you shoplift a dress from Ann Taylor, does Hashem care? Maybe, maybe not. He's busy. But the security guard in the store, who's paid to watch the merchandise, he cares. The employees who make lower wages because lost income affects the bottom line, they care. The family members who see you in that dress at the holidays, they don't care. They don't even know it's stolen. But they still call you a slut because the dress is too small and the color kind of whorish. Unlike the Catholics, Jews atone not because of our fear of the next world, but out of love and respect for the people in this one. Yes, in the Kol Nidra prayer, we ask God's pardon from promises we couldn't keep, and yes, we don't eat for 24 hours, which, for Jews, is a torture worse than being trapped in an elevator with the dance moms. Far be it from me to say that Jews should not be afraid of going to hell, or worse, West Hempstead. But, as Jean-Paul Sartre proved, hell can be other people. This is the planet we're on for however long we're on it. So, if we are forced to think twice about how we treat our fellow travelers, maybe they will do the same for us. And that makes a better planet for everybody. So, this young Kipper, when it's 4.30 in the afternoon, and you're tired, and you're grumpy, and your breath smells like something that malformed in Jerry Stiller's tuchus, remember that you're there to do better, to be better, or at least to try harder. This has been a rabbinical reflection from Rabbi Sal Solomon, Temple Sons of Bitches in Great Neck, New York. Lather, rinse, repent. Thank you, Rabbi Saul Solomon. Rabbi Saul, of course, from Temple Sons of Bitches, Great Neck, New York. To find out more about Rabbi Saul, go to shalomdammit.com.
Damit.com. D-A-M-M-I-T. Shalom, Damit.com. The big news about Rabbi Saul, of course, is that he spent a couple of weeks in August in New York doing his show live, Shalom, Damit, an evening with Rabbi Saul Solomon at the Roy Arias Theater in Midtown. It went great. The reviews are amazing. You can see the links to them on shalomdammit.com. But also that um, it looks like he'll be able to bring the show back to Greeley sometime in the next few weeks uh, or certainly very, very early in the new year. So if you missed it back when he was first developing the show uh, and, and it was done here at the university, Worry Not is a slick, streamlined version that he's going to be bringing back. Possibly, well, we haven't 100% decided the venue yet, but it's, we've, we've narrowed it down to one or two. And you will get to see Rabbi Saul in Shalom Dammit. It's not to be missed. Well, we don't want to miss out on playing some Bob Dylan music. I know we're running kind of late here, but every week we try and do a Bob Dylan segment because he's just the most amazing singer-songwriter musical personality alive, really is. And so um, the thing is, he put out that album last week. On September 11th, he released Tempest, his 35th studio album, and um, we played a song or two from it last week, and now he's doing a little bit of media to promote the, the record, and he did a big interview in Rolling Stone magazine, this past week. I, I got a chance to read it. And he's forever Bob Dylan, sometimes cagey, sometimes open and funny, sometimes really you know, kind of self-important and jerky, sometimes really humble and admitting of certain things. I mean, you know, every other paragraph, he's putting on almost dis- different masks of himself. And some of them are really like, oh, you know, what, a, what an a-hole. And some of them are like, yeah, only Bob, you know, beloved Bob. That's, that's just him being him. But I thought one of the cool things that we could do for our Bob Dylan Sooner and Later segment today on Dave's Gone By is just play a couple of the songs that he mentions or that are talked about in the Rolling Stone article. So if you get a chance to read it, you know, either online or, or in the magazine itself, you can maybe do a little, a little bit of following along. So we'll begin with one song that's mentioned in the Rolling Stone article. Oh, and by the way, we're... we're this, this is my special kind of cleverness. We're titling this Bob Dylan segment, Like in Rolling Stone. Get it? Not like a, a Rolling Stone, like in Rolling Stone. Okay, I, I get a kick out of that kind of thing. But hopefully you'll get a kick out of this live version of Rainy Day Women numbers 12 and 35. This is from Bob Dylan and the band Before the Flood.
Delia was a gambling girl, gambled all around. Delia was a gambling girl, she laid her money down. All the friends I ever had are gone. Delia's dear mother took a trip out west. When she returned, it'll be a gone to rest. All the friends I ever had gone. He is daddy weak. He is mama moan. When I've been so bad, if the poor girl. Sister Cuddy, what's this noise about? All about them around us, judge, trying to cut me out. All the friends I ever had are gone. Cuddy said to the judge, what might be my
Uh, the Wonders of YouTube. Bob Dylan there with a rarity I'd never heard of before this week. Roll on John, going back to 1962. And he's, um, the woman he's talking to is Cynthia Gooding. And I, I, she may even be accompanying him there musically. But uh, that's just a, a rarity I picked up because one of the songs on Bob Dylan's new album, Tempest, is also called Roll on John and specifically dedicated to and about uh, Dylan's friend and acquaintance, John Lennon. So Dylan finally, I guess, got around to writing a song about John Lennon and he put it on his brand new album in 2012, Tempest, that just dropped last week. So we're in uh, the midst of our Bob Dylan Sooner and Later segment, Like in Rolling Stone, because... um, an article came out, a big interview with Dylan about his new album and about his life and other things and his transformations, whatever those are. Uh, you know, you can read it in this week's Rolling Stone and also, I guess, on rollingstone.com. It's one o two in the afternoon here, Mountain Time, at the University of Northern Colorado. And so, yeah, the, the, our show should technically be ending now, but I'm going to take another 15 minutes. We're, we're going to be here until a quarter after one, so I can play one more Dylan song. It's only fair that I, uh, you know, I play something from the new album, so I will be playing Roll On John just as soon as I give you the weather and remind you that you're listening to Dave's Gone By on UNC Radio, the radio station of the University of Northern Colorado. You can hear us at uncradio.com, also on Channel 3 on your dorm room television sets if you're going to the university here. I'm Dave Lefkowitz, and the name of the show is Dave's Gone By. And let's see the weather out. Another unbelievably gorgeous day. We're only going to pop or top out at 79 degrees. going to be a clear and sunny day, going down to the mid-40s. Then warming up a bit tomorrow, Sunday, September 23rd, will be in the mid-80s for our high, and then only down to the mid-50s for the low. So it's a little bit of a warm front. Then Monday is going to be pretty much just like today, only a little cloudier chance of a thunderstorm high of 79. Tuesday, a little bit of a cooling front during the day. We only reach 72 degrees on a cloudy day. But then Wednesday, we're back up to 77. So really... Only chance of unsettled weather is on Monday. Chance of a thunderstorm. Otherwise, we're looking at the high 70s, um, low 80s for our highs, down to the upper 40s or low 50s for the lows. Perfect seasonal weather as it has been for so long here in Greeley, Colorado at the University of Northern Colorado, where I, Dave, do Dave's Gong By. Remember that uh, you can find out more about this program at davesgongby.com. Also, you can email me, davesgongby at aol.com, to see the playlist for the songs that we play on this show, even while we're playing them, we update that all show long at our MySpace page. Just go to MySpace.com and search for Dave's Gone By. We also have a Facebook page, which I believe is under my name, Dave Lefkowitz, rather than Dave's Gone By. Uh, let's see. I have a Twitter. I have a um, Rabbi Saul 
also has a Twitter account. I should have mentioned that before. It's at Rabbi Saul Solomon. And, oh, well, all, you know what? Just go to davesgoneby.com. All the basic information is there, as well as archived episodes of the program. They're all free. They're all in MP3 form, so they can be downloaded. They can be streamed. They can put, be put on your iPod. Just all there. And they're grouped chronologically and also listed alphabetically by the special guests that we've had on the show. And so I want to mention right now, before we play one more Dylan tune, that um, we have special guests coming up in our next couple of shows. Very exciting. First of all, next Saturday, September 29th on the episode, we have Al Kasha. He is a um, composer. And he has written for Broadway, and he's won Oscars for music. You know that song, The Morning After, from Towering Inferno? He wrote that. He won an Oscar for it. Not only that, but he added some songs and wrote a lot of the music for the stage version of Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. That was kind of a hit in London. It it didn't didn't, uh, play all that well in New York apparently, back in the early 80s. But it it did pretty well in the regionals and in London. So Al Kasha will be our guest. We might have two guests next week. I'm still not sure about that. We will see. And then our big 10th anniversary show, because I started doing Dave's Gone By on October 6th of 2002. It's been 10 years. Was doing it in New York, now doing it in this wonderful station here at UNC. So to celebrate our 10th anniversary show. I'll be doing all the usual things, probably play some couple of clips from our very first episode. That'll be wild to hear because I haven't heard that in a long time. And then one of our guests will be Broadway actor Robert Cuccioli, very busy Broadway fella. He was in the uh, original Jekyll and Hyde, the Frank Wildhorn musical. He played Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He was also off-Broadway in And the World Goes Round with Candor and Ebb. Let's see, a lot of other Broadway and off-Broadway credits, but currently he's playing Green Goblin on Broadway in Spider-Man. So it's going to be a lot of fun to talk to Robert Cuccioli on October 6th. Also, our big special guest for that 10th anniversary episode, Amy Mann, the one, the only, the goddess one of my great loves and crushes in music, and also someone whose music and lyrics I respect so much, and I think she's one of the best that we've had going for the past 20 years. Amy Mann will be in the neighborhood. We'll play a bunch of her music. She has a new album out called Charmer. Of course, it's really good. You know, I haven't even heard all of the songs yet, but I, I can tell it's just really, really good, as all her stuff is. So, so much to ask her about. You know, the, the Till Tuesday years, the solo years. I mean, we, we don't need to talk about her record company problems. We, that's, that's ancient history. But her new album, you know, her, her, her life as a musician and also her home life. She's married to, um, to Michael Penn, a musician in his own right, and the brother of Sean Penn. So hopefully we'll have time to get to that. I don't, well, I don't have a lot of time with her, but I will make the most of it on October 6th. Amy Mann and Robert Cuccioli both my special guests for the 10th anniversary show of Dave's Gone By. I'm really, really excited about that, and I hope you are too. So let's hear a little bit more of Bob Dylan before we go out of here on this episode of Dave's Gone By. I told you that the song I just played, Roll On John, was this kind of old standard folk song that Dylan was learning and playing back in 1962, but also he's done a totally different song 
that he just wrote for the new album that's dedicated to and about John Lennon. And that song also is called Roll On John. And let's hear it right now on Bob Dylan Sooner and Later on Dave's Gone By. Get up, 
I have to say that's the first time I've heard that song uh, all the way through, and it's it's I think a pretty terrific way to end that new Bob Dylan Tempest album, Roll On John, and kind of the way to end this episode of Dave's Gone By. We've run a little bit late, but I, I to cram in all the stuff that we did, we kind of had to, and I'm certainly glad I made time to play that new song from Bob Dylan's Tempest album. That was Bob Dylan, Sooner and Later. We heard Rainy Day Women, numbers 12 and 35, the live version from uh, Before the Flood, so that's him with the band. Delia, the folk song, and then the 1962 version of Roll On John, a very, very different 
traditional folk song and then going out with Roland John from 2012's Tempest record. Well, I do want to say before we get out of here that I want to give a couple of shout-outs to friends of the neighborhood. These are folks who have been on the show in years past, and we like to keep tabs on what they're up to and what they're doing. And you have one more night to see Marilyn May at Feinstein's in New York, 540 Park Avenue in the Lowe's Regency Hotel. She's appearing with Michael Feinstein, the owner of Feinstein's. So Marilyn May, she's been playing there for the past two weeks. This is your last night to go see her. Um, Tomorrow, Sunday, September 23rd, Linda Lavin is appearing at 54 Below with Billy Stritch as her musical director. Um, Still playing until next weekend, until September 29th, the amazing Judy Collins at the Cafe Carlisle on East 76th Street. For more information, go to the Carlisle.com. Again, you know, I'm so excited that we've got Amy Mann coming up in two weeks. I also have to remember that a couple of months ago we had Judy Collins on the program. <sighs> Sometimes it just amazes me, you know, that, that little old me is talking to some of these people. Uh, makes me real, real happy. On October 15th, Frank Wildhorn will be at Birdland with Jane Monheit. Everybody still go see Carrie Hoffman doing My Sinatra at Sophia's 221 West 46th Street. Everybody, please subscribe to DrDemento.com because he's still doing brand new Dr. Demento shows on the internet. You can listen to David Kenny's weekly program, Everything Old is New Again, Sundays on WBAI-FM 99.5 in New York, 9 to 11 p.m. You can also stream that on WBAI.org. Read Studies in Crap from Alan Scherstuhl at The Village Voice. He's now the film editor there. He's <laughs> got there in very tumultuous times for that newspaper. I hope he's doing okay. I mean, at first I was very, very jealous that he got this fantastic gig, editor of the film section, and then, you know, they're, they're letting go people right and left and changing things, so I hope he's all right. Alan Scherstuhl, though, hilarious column, studies in crap that he tries to keep up once a week. Hope that he's still doing that there at uh, villagevoice.com. Also, Theater-wise, at the Snapple Theater Center in Midtown Manhattan, Perfect Crime still growing, still going strong with lead actress Catherine Russell. She's been there from the very beginning when they started doing this thing in, what was it, the 1980s? She's done 23,000 performances or something like that. Still there, Catherine Russell, Perfect Crime, Off-Broadway, go see it. And Andrew Goffman in The Accidental Pervert, playing at the 13th Street Theater Friday and Saturday nights. He's there until December 8th, 2012, and who knows? I mean, they've extended that thing so many times. They keep selling tickets, they'll extend it again. Andrew Goffman, The Accidental Pervert at the 13th Street Theater. Well, what a... Oh. This is one of my favorite and best shows that we've done in quite a while. So thrilled that you were with me for the 394th episode of Dave's Gone By. We called it Miller Time. So thanks so much to Carol Miller for being in the neighborhood with us. Also, Stephen Shohet and Rabbi Saul Solomon will be back next Saturday, September 29th. Al Kasha will be our guest. Also, I think Rabbi Saul Solomon will be back with another rabbinical reflection. We'll have more Bob Dylan music. We'll have more Saturday segues. More stuff to do. The only thing I do want to tell you is that there's a slight possibility, slight possibility, I might have to cancel next week's show because as I mentioned on Thursday, 
<sighs> old Dave's getting old. He's having a wisdom tooth pulled. He's lived with it for long enough, but it's, it's rotten out. It's time to get taken out. And so they're going to put me under. They're going to give me a little bit of anesthesia, some goofy gas, and I'm going to be a little under the, the weather. <laughs> kind of like, I hope, at least I won't be Carol Miller with a whooping cough. You know, nothing quite like that. But you know, I might still have some gauze in the old mouth, and whether I can make it through a three-hour show next week, I don't know. So if I have to cancel, I'll probably know that by Friday. Check davesgoneby.com, and I'll let you know if I have to revise my plans. Otherwise, hopefully, my mouth will at least be up to some speech if I am on Saturday morning, September 29th, which means I'll be here for the 395th episode of Dave's Gone By. This is Dave Lefkowitz. Thank you so much for joining us on this this terrific Saturday, well, now it's afternoon, isn't it? Let's go out with music that, if you're from New York from a certain era, if you listen to WPLJ, if you listen to WNEW, and you listened to Carol Miller, you'll remember this music very, very well. Uh, grab this off the Internet. As soon as you hear it, you'll know exactly what it is. We'll go out with that theme. Oh, and, and also... Hey, everybody have a, a safe fast, all my Jewish listeners um, joining me on Wednesday for, uh, for Yom Kippur. Go, go atone. Go you know, take a day of reflection if you, if you need one, if you have one. And uh, be good <laughs> and gone by. That's our entire song. It's called My Sweetheart by Group Called Focus. And that was the big montage at 95.5 WPLJ.